And in the end, Trav, I picked up 3,000 hitchhikers. And so some days I had 30 hitchhikers in one day. I had at one point like a dozen people in my car at once. You know, they were on the roof. They're one, they were hanging on the side because I had a, like a little, like it was a step platform or something like that. So I had the windows rolled down. They were holding onto the window and sitting on the platform. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 377. Lesotho, which if you don't know where that is, it's a country completely surrounded by South Africa, is the only country on earth to lie completely above 1,000 meters in elevation. Man, I would have thought that it'd be Nepal. I consider myself pretty well-traveled, and I also consider myself a minimalist packer. But today's guest, Francis Tapon, puts me to shame on both of those accounts. You're going to hear about a lot of his crazy adventures today going through Africa. But he told me a story once that when he was hiking the Camino, that he packed in something like a 20-liter backpack. And if you're unfamiliar with how big 20 liters is, think of a really a small school backpack, one that you would have taken to middle school with you. And he used that for entire hike of the Camino. So I'm not that crazy. And if you're not that crazy, if you're someone's like, hey, listen, I'm not going to be like Francis. I I can't just get by with one pair of pants, one t-shirt, one pair of shoes, but I do want to pack in just a carry-on. I've got the perfect bag for you, the one that I take all over the world with me, my Tortuga backpack. So if you're not crazy, crazy minimalist, but you also want to make sure that you're only packing just a carry-on, check it out, tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget to use that promo code EPOP. That'll get you 10% off your entire order. No matter what type of packer you are, whether you are someone who is a crazy minimalist packer or you're someone who's a quote-unquote normal carry-on packer or you're horrors, someone who packs in a checked bag, the one thing that you can do to pack lighter is make sure that you're packing less shoes. And for a while, this was really difficult for me even. I knew I didn't want to pack a lot of shoes, but I didn't have a travel shoe that I could recommend. There was nothing that fit the bill for being super comfortable, super lightweight, easy to pack and looked good whether you're going to go out, you know, just walking around town kind of doing some sporty stuff or whether you're going to go somewhere and need to be a little dressier until I found Suaves and I am so glad that I had them. I've been wearing them all over the Pacific Northwest on this latest trip. They are absolutely incredible. They're unisex. So whether you're a guy or a girl, you can get them and they are the perfect travel shoe, the thing I've been looking for for years. So if you want to check them out, go to Suaves, S-U-A-V-S.com. We have a special promo code for you. You can use EPOP and that'll get you 15% off your entire order there. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is the author of one of my favorite books of all time, The Hidden Europe, creator, producer, star, and everything else of the Unseen Africa, 
and a man who's probably had more adventures in the last three days than I've had in my entire life, Francis <laughs> Tapon of WanderLearn.com. Francis, you are like my travel, I would say, role model. I, I don't know. You just you do so much. We're going to get into it. But uh, huge welcome back to the show. It's been almost exactly four years since we last chatted on this podcast, about 275 episodes ago. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you were... You were Deep in the middle of Africa somewhere, Burkina Faso, maybe? That sounds about right. It could have been. Yeah. Do you remember what episode number it was for people who want to go back and listen to it? I don't. We'll link it up in the show notes. I, I okay. don't remember what episode it was. But I do remember that what was interesting was you went you went to the nicest hotel in the area so that you could have good Wi-Fi. And then you, you like, there was like, you were sick or there was like a dust coming through. So you went to try to get water, but they only had alcohol. It was, it was crazy. It was funny. And it was the, <laughs> still to this day, the only time that I've recorded with someone in Africa. And I think, I think it was Burkina Faso. I don't know if that rings a bell to you or not, but I, yeah, I that, that sounds about right. I remember definitely talking about my mechanics in Burkina Faso. I just don't remember if I was actually calling you from the car. Yeah. But yeah. So many stories since then. We're going to do a huge deep dive on your latest project, The Unseen Africa, all the crazy adventures you had with that and, and what you see as the future of that project and, and going forward. But first, I want to know, you know, what you tell people when they ask you, hey, what do you do? Because this is a question I get, and, and you do even more and more crazy stuff. So someone's like, Francis, all right, what do you do, man? Yeah, you had a dinner party, or you're meeting other people for the first time. What do you tell them? I do, well, the simple answer is always just travel writer. That's what I just said. And then that's like, oh, wow, travel writer. Everybody gets ex- uh, excited by that term. And then Sometimes it ends just right there, but usually it's like, okay, what do you write? You know, and I, and then they surprise. I've actually written two books. You know, they may think I'm a person who's writing for, uh, I don't know, New York Times. If I got that, that would be nice. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, travel writer. That's it. And then from there, if they start to probe. Then we go on a deep dive. <laughs> yeah, we go into right before we started recording this, we were talking about, hey, what's the best way to tell people where to go to find out all your projects? And you're going through all the redirects that you have that go to your, your site, your name, Francis Tapon. It's like Wander Learn, Hidden Europe, Unseen Africa, Africa 54. You've got like 18 things going on that all funnel to the, yeah. to the one place. You've got your podcast now, um, yeah. all, all types of stuff. And, and I want to. Because what's neat in what I want to dive into first is this is the idea of the unseen Africa. Because last time we chatted, you're in Burkina uh, Burkina Faso, we think, uh, but you were starting, you were at least in the beginning stages of this uh, this journey. And I want people to get an idea of what you've done because to me, it's absolutely fascinating. It's one of the coolest. I I would say like one of the most interesting projects that I've seen done, not just for what you did, but the perseverance and the time that it took. And, and the, as you mentioned, the deep dive that you did. So unseen Africa, give us the scope of this project and what it is. Okay. The unseen Africa is turned. Well, originally it was a three year project to visit every single African country. There are 54 African countries. Oh, actually take a step back. I originally thought it was going to be a one year trip. This is way back when this is like 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I first conceived it. And then I realized, you know, that's only a week per country. That's not going to work it out. So I said three weeks per country, which is about three years. After a month of being in Africa, I realized, no, I'm not, I haven't even left Morocco. 
and took actually after three months in Morocco, that's when I was like, all right, I got to I got to extend this. In the end, it's a five year project. So about five weeks per country, every single country in Africa and never leaving during the whole time. And also doing it mostly over land. I, I took planes when I want to go to the island nations. There's seven island nations. Can you name them all? I can probably name none of them. Uh, Principe oh, and on. San Tome is one. That's one. Um, yes. Madagascar yes. would be another. Yes. Oh, man. I and, and Travis is doing this without the help of Google. Right, right, He's doing right. it on his... I mean, I know, <laughs> oh, man. On the spot. All right, those are the two that I can get. It, there's another island cl- very close to Madagascar, correct? You start saying it. Starts with a C. Comoros, Comoros. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. So I'm three for seven right now. You could give us the other four. (laughs) This would be like a seven hour podcast as I sit here and stew (laughs) through my brain of of the four other African island nations. Uh, Seychelles and Mauritius, which are both on the east side. Okay. And then the uh, and on the west side, you name Sao Tome and Principe, which is on the west side. Also, you've got uh, Cape Verde. Okay. Yeah, interesting. I can't believe I missed Seychelles, which was probably, I would guess, one of the easier or one of the more known ones because of people going for vacations and holidays and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah, and it's also the the second richest on a GDP per capita basis. A lot of people are – it used to be the richest, but then when um, Equatorial Guinea discovered petroleum – Suddenly, they became the richest per capita, and that's what they are right now. The good old, good old petroleum, good old oil, right? That changes the fortunes yeah. of, of many a country, especially in in a place like Africa. Now, so, so during that time, Travis, I never left the continent, and that's another thing that surprises a lot of people. Never, like, didn't you just like go to Europe for a little getaway, or did you go to like Dubai or something? I'm like, no, I just was all in. And that's kind of like the nature of like the travels I like to do. I like to go all in. As you know, the hidden Europe, I was three and a half years nonstop, just all into Eastern Europe. And that, so that's like a self, uh, you know, that's a self-discipline thing, right? Like that's a, you're, you're putting the constraints on yourself. Obviously you could have left, but do you do it because it's a, a challenge for yourself? Do you do it in a way like how an actor doesn't leave character when they're preparing for a film? What is the reasoning behind, hey, I'm not, like I'm not going outside of this at all. I'm not going outside Africa. I'm not going outside of Eastern Europe when I was there. You know, why is this such an immersion tactic that you use? I think it came from when I hiked the Appalachian Trail. So those who don't know the Appalachian Trail, it's a 2,200 mile or something like that, 2,167 mile trail on the East Coast. And that is kind of another all-in journey if you do it as a does sections, which is totally fine, of course, too. But I did it as one long through hike, and it took about nearly four months. And that's when I appreciated traveling as an all-in exercise. That's when I realized, wow, there's something to be said. There's something you can glean from not having distractions, interruptions. It, and, and it's the kind of the same thing with, in today's modern society with our telephones and all that kind of stuff. Uh, just being able to uh, just set aside perfect time blocks. And I think you can get insights that you could not get 
in a seven month continuous journey than if you went to the same place seven, you know, like back and forth, back and forth over seven months, even though you spend 90% of those seven months there, that breakup really disrupts your continuity. Did you come close at all to, to leaving? Were there anything that, that where you thought, you know, maybe something was going to force you to leave or maybe personally you're just like, all right, I'm over this. I've been here three years. Give me something. Give me something a little different. Yeah, I one point I, I, I was always worried about my mom's health. My mom's 80 years old. And so I just, you know, that's the time of, you know, anything could happen. So there's that potential. I mean, my brother, he's young, but I mean, not young, but when he's something could have happened to him, you know, something like that, a family emergency where I would say, okay, I have to leave Africa. So that was my only real legitimate concern, I would think. Um, The other potential, uh, actually one time, okay, since nobody's listening to this, it's just a conversation between you and me, Travis. I'll tell you a secret. We're not on air here. (laughs) That's right. So I'll tell you a secret. I actually left the continent uh, when I went into the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, near the end of my journey, Egypt was the last uh, country that I had to visit. And I left briefly to go into the Sinai Peninsula for about a month because I wanted to see the Sinai Peninsula, first of all, but also because it was my quest to climb the tallest mountain of every African country. By the way, when I was summarizing the journey, I forgot to mention that, that not, I didn't want to just visit and get my passport stamped in all 54 African countries, but I actually wanted to climb the tallest mountain of every single African country. So uh, the tallest mountain of Egypt is in the Sinai Peninsula. And so when you cross the Suez Canal, you have technically left the African continent. But don't tell anybody. All right, so you've technically okay, so you've technically <laughs> left the African continent, but you're still in the country of Egypt, or have you crossed over to? Yes, yes, yes. So just like Russia is 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 seventy percent in Asia and thirty percent in Europe, Egypt is another one of these countries. Actually, Turkey is another good example. Turkey is part of Istanbul is in the European continent. It's on the other side of the Bosphorus River. And in fact, 70%, I believe, of the Turkish population is in Europe, or at least 70% of Istanbul. Istanbul. Yeah, that probably makes sense. Yep, yep. Yeah, is is in Europe. Um, And so Egypt is just another one of these countries that cross continents, the and then therefore, uh, yeah, the Sinai Peninsula has their tallest mountain. So here's the thing. And here's another cool kind of like little technicality. So I and a lot of people count, climb Mount Catherine, which is the tallest mountain of Egypt, right? It's in the Sinai Peninsula. But I thought to myself, what if some jerk decides to like say, you know what, Francis, you didn't climb the tallest mountain of Egypt that's in the African continent. Right. So, so essentially okay. you, you had to do two mountains in Egypt in case someone wanted to be yeah. really technical and squeeze that on you, right? Exactly. So then I had to do some research and find out where is the tallest mountain of Egypt in the African continent. And I found out, and I'm blanking out right now on the name, it's totally unknown. Very few people go there. Um, and But it's near the, um, the Red Sea. And it's off the, off the I want to see Khardaya. It's that's on the other side. Anyway, 
I can put it in the show notes, send you an email or something like that. But anyway, it's 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 not it's it's still a tough mountain. In fact, it's much tougher than Mount Catherine. So Mount Catherine's taller, but this mountain, because it's remote, there's absolutely no water, and because there's really no trail, it is a ball breaker. And so that was a that was a tough mountain. I did it as a day hike, but boy. There was one point I had to literally squeeze through. I squeezed through this entry, and the guy I was with after me, he could not get through. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the summit. You just did, because he was just slightly bigger than me, just slightly bigger. Uh, but eventually he did squeeze through. He just was persistent, but he, he, it took him like 10 minutes to get through. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you did, you did all the highest peaks in every African country, all 54, plus you added on the Sinai, the, the part of Egypt that's outside of Africa, which I, surprisingly enough, I, yeah, I don't think I knew that, or at least I didn't remember that. Maybe I learned it at some point. And I love those geographical oddities. And one of the reasons I love reading your books and listening to your podcast and reading the stuff you write is because you love them too. Just these weird, yeah. quirky things. And, and we had this debate on the first podcast. If you guys go back and listen to it of, you did the book about Eastern Europe. Now, Africa, easier because you're saying, all right, I know what's on the African continent. It's delineated very, very clearly. Here are the countries that are there. When you did the Hidden Europe, it was Eastern Europe, which obviously isn't its own continent. It's a region, which to this day, I still get people ask me what's in Eastern Europe. Heather and I did a show about Eastern versus Western Europe, and we couldn't, you know, it's it's much harder to delineate. So I love I love that you love the geographical oddities and, and things as well. What else did you find in Unseen Africa, like these funny, goofy oh. geographical oddities? Okay, that's another interesting. There, I thought I was so happy, Trav, to get to Africa because I was like, finally, nobody is going to bug me anymore. By the way, can we swear on this show? You can, can, you can do whatever you want. Okay. okay, so I was so fucking happy that finally this fucking Eastern Europe debate that was driving me crazy, listening to all these things, I was like, finally, I'm going to go to a clearly defined continent, Africa. Nobody debates it. Okay, but then once I started getting into the weeds, the same similar issues started popping up. And I'll tell you what they were. First of all, is the Seychelles, is that part of Africa or not? You know, it's way out there by India, stuff like that. Not too much debate about that, but, you know, there's that little tiny issue of saying, well, you're no longer in Africa. Second of all, here's a stupider argument, but I hear it often, is is North Africa in Africa? So is, is Egypt African? Is Algeria African? Is Libya African? Is Morocco, Tunisia, all they all African? Because, of course, it's not black. It's It's largely not black. So even people in fucking Algeria would say, I'm, I haven't, I've never been to Africa. <laughs> I was like, Egyptians would tell me, oh, you've been to all the African countries. God, I've never been to Africa. <laughs> I'm like, you're in fucking Egypt, dude. <laughs> okay. So, so even Africans were giving you crap about the fact that, that you couldn't even define Africa to them, or at least you were defining it differently than them. All right. Oh it, yeah, and so there's a there's a on my uh, just search for what countries are in the sub-Sahara or sub-Saharan Africa. You'll find my article. I wrote a long article about what are the countries in the sub-Saharan because that is the equivalent of what countries are in Eastern Europe. I thought I got away from that damn debate, but now, just like nobody wants to be in Eastern Europe. Nobody wants to be in the fucking sub-Sahara. That's actually kind of not true, but it's it's kind of like a lot of people. It's like I'm 
I'm in Morocco. I'm not, you know, uh, is Mauritania in the sub-Sahara? Is Sudan in the sub-Sahara? Is Chad? What about um, Niger? I mean, all these countries are kind of like right on the border of the Sahara. So where do you, where do, what about, there's some, listen to this, if you, if you know your maps. Some people even say that Eritrea and Ethiopia are not part of the sub-Sahara. What do they and, consider and because, them then? Like because they're they're not really like classic black African from the Bantu kind of thing. They're they're kind of like a, a, a they're mixture of color. It's kind of like Arabic ish, and so a lot of people say, but that's a kind of a racist way of defining Africa because you know the the sub-Sahara. Sorry. Uh, the sub-Sahara should be, but you can't call the sub-Sahara black Africa. There's some people who don't even like the term sub-Sahara. I'm not kidding you. So, what, so, I, so what do they are? People who don't like sub-Sahara, what do they, what is the term they use? Cause sub-Sahara, you're literally just saying you are below the Sahara desert, right? Which I also would think is very clearly defined. Like if you're South of it, geographically, you're in sub-Sahara. If, if they don't like that term, what, do they like, like, is there a regional term they like using or, it, or it's just, we don't want any terms put on. Exactly. they don't want, they'll say like, or here's what they'll say. Sometimes they'll, they'll say like, we should just, they'll either give you two answers. They should just say, just call it Africa. You know, let's not divide it. Or let's call it South Africa, Southern Africa, East Africa, West Africa, Middle Africa. But then I said, down the road, because then what the fuck is East Africa? What is West Africa? The what? I mean, there's that is a nebulous term, and and what's what I call Middle Africa. I don't call it Central Africa because there's Central African Republic. So then, that is a gray area. Like for example, Cameroon is that in Middle Africa or is that in West Africa? If you look at a map, it's not clear. I mean, <laughs> so you're just kicking the can down the road. So it's it's a nonsensical. And the other thing that irritates me is when people say. And and everybody's guilty of this, including myself. They'll say they'll talk about the sub uh, the sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the crisis in the sub-Saharan Africa or something. Africa sub Africa sub-Sahara. And I'm like, no, let can we just call it the sub-Sahara? Because there's no Asian sub-Sahara. Uh, sorry, there, you know, there's no Sahara in Asia. There's there's only one sub-Sahara. You don't have to say sub-Saharan Africa. Right. You don't need the qualifier uh, of what continent it's on because the desert <laughs> itself only exists in one place. So if you're sub <laughs> it, you. yeah, yeah. unless you're like, oh, maybe Antarctica is sub-Sahara. I mean, technically it's south of the Sahara Desert, you know, or right. some silly <laughs> argument like that. What's, what's yeah. the most mind-boggling about this whole thing is that obviously these are terms and boundaries that are drawn on a map even more so with Africa than probably any other area or region. These are areas that are drawn on a map by other people who have come and, you know, forced these lines on a map and forced these tribes into areas. So it's funny, too, because there's maybe not funny is not the right word. It's interesting that they're sitting there saying, hey, we don't even care. At least, you know, some people don't even care what country you're saying we're a part of because this doesn't even matter to us at this point. So... It's all it's all relative. It's all nebulous. It's all that when you when you had this idea, because here's what I love about your product. Well, a, I love that you're doing them because I I will never get I'm not going to say let's not say never. But the way my life is set up now, not able to say, hey, I'm going to take five years. I'm going to go to Africa. <laughs> but I love that you do. And then I can just read a book or watch your video. Talk. Wait a second. How old? How old is Whit? Wit is Wit is one year old right now. 
Okay, so he's got to start school at five or six. So you've got at least four years to go through Africa. There we go. Or I just pick another part. I, I got to pick a part you haven't been to. You've been to Eastern Europe, so all right, I won't do that. You've not, you're going to write the book on Africa, so maybe I got to pick a part of the world and and be like the Francis Tapon of X Y Z. Well, you're going to Central Asia before me. I hopefully, hopefully. I don't know. We'll see if I can get oh. there, but. I, I thought you said you're going to Kyrgyzstan. I, I mean, that's the goal. It's the goal. Um, the okay. goal is to go to Kyrgyzstan right. um, on supposedly this summer-ish of 2019. All right. we'll, we'll see if it actually pans out. Um, but yeah, I the problem is I'm not as good or as funny a writer as you. So if I go there, <laughs> I'll be like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? I, I need him to come here and actually write the book on I want to go after you because you, you unearth all the hidden gems and I can just like be the lazy man who comes in behind and doesn't have to do any of the work. Um, but, but you, all right, this idea, you say, hey, I'm going to go to Africa. Originally, you thought it was one year and you said like that was 10, 15 years ago when you, when you started right. formulating this plan. First of all, was that before or after you did Europe? Like after you did Eastern Europe, did you say, hey, I want to do this again, but I want to do it somewhere else in the world? And is that when the idea to do Africa happened? No, it's actually an interesting uh, question is that I originally thought about going to Africa with when I was dating my girlfriend at the time, the girl I hiked the Appalachian Trail with. Her name was Lisa Garrett. And that was we were going to go do Africa together. And then we broke up. And so then I thought, you know what, I don't really want to do that by myself. You know, it's just like, you know, what would be a fun place as a single guy to go through? It's going to be, you know, Eastern Europe. There you go. You got hotties galore. Why not? So I was like, okay, Eastern Europe. So that, that's how that basically happened. That's why I boarded the Africa plan and switched to Eastern Europe at last second, just because I was going to go as a, as a single guy. It's like, okay, this is, I'll, I'll t- I, I'm not that experienced as a travel at that point, first of all. And Eastern Europe is a lot, a lot, 10 times easier to get through than Africa. Uh, so I thought, well, this could be my training ground as well. I love that. La- a last second change for a three and a half year project. <laughs> I get, I, in my head, it's like a movie. You're at the airport. You've got your ticket to fly into Cairo. You're looking at it. You're like, well, it's going to be a couple years of my life. Ah, screw it. I'm just going. I'm starting in Budapest. And you just like. Okay, wait, hold on. But here, here's the funny story. I'll tell you another funny story. When the Africa project, okay, so at this point, I was all in three years at East Africa. And I was going to start in Egypt. So this was my plan. In fact, I had my fucking ticket booked to Egypt. And so my ticket, I was flying into Cairo. I was going to buy my car in Cairo and then drive all. Uh, at that point, I was going to go south into Sudan and go all the way down to southern Africa and then come up the west side of Africa. Right. So that was my original plan. When I arrived in Madrid, because that's where I had to kind of transfer planes, they canceled the connection to Egypt, not just canceled it for the day, Trav. They canceled it permanently. Like the route was done. Like this is not flying ever again. (laughs) Because this was. Yeah, because this was this was uh, 2013 and Spain was in the crisis of you know having this big currency crisis and stuff like that and nobody was going to egypt anymore and egypt was during the arab spring so the the whole revolution was happening so who the fuck spain spaniards had no money and was in fire on fire so like that's why they just canceled the entire route and like no more flights to egypt i was like well that's nice so there i was stuck in madrid so 
I did basically what you just said. I was like, okay, well, fuck it. We're just going to come up with a brand new plan. I just, I could have probably bought some other way to get to Egypt, but instead, you know what I did? I bought the car in Madrid, drove it down south to Andalusia, put it on Gibraltar, you know, right by the Gibraltar, and then took it across Gibraltar into Morocco. And then I decided, instead, I'm going to make, I'm going to go south from Morocco all the way down, and Egypt ended up being the last country I visited. <laughs> I had no, I did not know, and he, I did not know that at all. And I've been following it like somewhat closely. You know, we've stayed in contact here and there. I had no idea. So, and here's the thing that you were planning on filming all this, or you did film a lot of it. You wanted to make it into a show, and we could talk about if that's in the works. So, it's not just you gallivanting, like, oh, all right, whatever. I'm going to drive this car. I mean, I guess it is just you gallivanting because that's what you did. I'm going to drive this car. I'm going to change the whole route. But, I mean, you had other but, uh, uh, things sorry, in the works. Trav, I, I, did have, I did have a guy with me at the time who was a film, uh, he was my cinematographer. And so he ex- experienced, it wasn't just me by myself at that time. We landed in Madrid together. He was my cameraman. And all of a sudden, he and I together had to change our plan completely and go to Morocco and, and said, and so we had to film a pilot episode. And the idea was to film the pilot episode in Egypt. And one of the reasons was I thought the iconic buildings and the iconic stuff of Egypt, somehow I can take an unseen side of Egypt. That would be my challenge. But then I decided to flip it and let's just let's just do Morocco. Morocco is also quite popular and has a lot of unseen sides to it, too. So the pilot episode that I made, which was 45 minutes long, was in Morocco. But that was just a last second change. What? OK, so the guy first off, how do you talk the filmmaker into this? And what's he was the plan for him to follow you? Be like, oh, we're just going to go to Africa for five years. We're not allowed to leave the continent unless we go to the Sinai Peninsula. Don't tell anyone. Are you in? And he's just like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Or was he just coming to do the pilot and and then obviously moving on from that? Yeah, by the way, I never thought about the Sinai Peninsula issue until I was deep i mean after like four or five years until i was about to go to egypt i was like huh i guess i am going to leave the continent as i was i think i was going by but anyway the guy's name is josh huval he was a uh he's the guy who convinced me to drag him along in fact i was looking for a cinematographer it's true but he was on he contacted me because he read about my article which is kind of popular it's uh 10 reasons why the El Camino Santiago sucks. Which is how and I first found he, you as well. And we debate yeah. that or we talk about that in in the uh, first podcast we did four and a half years ago. Right, right. So so a lot of people find me through that El Camino de Santiago. Uh, it's got like three million views practically. So that's how they, they initially find me. And that's how Josh found me too. And he's this 21, he was a 21 year old guy at the time. And he was a cinematographer and has experience. And long story short, I hired him and, and said, okay, let's go out together. And he and I told him it's going to be a three-year journey because, again, I extended it to four years and then to five years while I was en route. So so we were going to Morocco, I think it was three years. And yes, we thought that, in theory, he should hang on all three years. And, and I was prepared for that. The guy didn't last a month. Not even a month. Just well, I guess a month I, after that, he quit. I mean, we, he couldn't even finish the fucking pilot episode. It was so frustrating. Uh, he just couldn't hack it. And uh, it's just, you know, Africa's tough. And Morocco, I think, is easy. But, you know, he had, he had been out of the country. He had been to Ukraine. He had been to uh, maybe one or two other. Uh, 
Um, but he was just out of his comfort zone, like way out of his comfort zone. I remember the fact that he couldn't speak with anybody. He, he didn't speak French. So he got frustrated by that. He, I remember he got, uh, he didn't like the fact that fish had bones in them because he had grew up in New Orleans. And I guess in New Orleans, every fish he'd ever eaten in his life had the bones removed. So it's like as if he didn't know that fish had bones. <laughs> so, okay, when this happened, walk me through your thought process. Like, were you mad? Were you upset? Were you, did you feel like, ah, ha, ha, like kind of puff your chest out a little bit like, oh, I'm a tougher traveler? I mean, or, or was it like, hey, I understand. I mean, this is obviously not a normal undertaking for someone, you know, like three years, Hey, you're going to Africa. You're not leaving. We're, we're not like, we're traveling over land. We're not staying in nice places all the time. Uh, What was it like, or was it just a combination of all of those types of feelings? It was a combination because I felt betrayed is a strong word, but I really felt let down uh, that he wouldn't even finish the pilot with me. Like I knew deep in my heart, especially as, we, once we had landed in Spain, he, he, he already in Spain, he started, uh, he and I started having a bit of friction and difficulties and things like that. So I knew right then, okay, this, this may not last even a year, but I just thought, okay, he's going to tough it out and go through the entire, you know, first episode, but he didn't. Um, so that was disappointing. Uh, but it wasn't completely surprising. Like I said, I didn't think that he was going to make it, but I was surprised that he was going to, that he couldn't last for even a country. So that's that definitely is surprising. But um, not not the thing like I'm some sort of like, oh, yeah, I wasn't puffed up by it. Um, I think a lot of people could could do Morocco. I mean, it's not that tough of a country. Um, yes, we did a lot of camping, um, but it totally a lot of people could have done it. It's it's and he also missed his girlfriend, by the way. You know, it's just things like that. Did, have you found anyone that's been able to keep up with you as far? Because My I know wife. you're. Okay. All right. We let's do, all right. Your wife, and that's probably why she's your wife. I would assume exactly. because you 30, know she was. I wasn't married, by the way, when I went there. So I met her in Cameroon, and then we got married in Zambia. And she traveled with me for thirty-one of the fifty-four African countries. All right. So you guys met how how many years into the journey did did you meet? When about was that? About two years. About half. About two years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years or so. Um, into the journey. I met her in January 23rd, 2015. So that was about, and I, uh, so yeah, that's about two and a half years, I think it was, what, or maybe two years. Anyway. What was the circumstances that, like, uh, that you met her? How did that happen? So we met on Badu, which is a kind of like a Tinder app. Okay. All right. Uh, so basically, I was, you know, I, 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 you know, somehow we both swiped right, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and then I communicated with her. It took us a couple of meet, a uh, couple of weeks to actually meet, and we hit it off right away. But you know, frankly, when I first met her, I was like, okay, this is you know just another girl that I'm going to meet, and it's not going to be, it's not going to last very long, stuff like that. But in the end, as I got to know her better, I found that she was very unique, different, completely uh, just amazing woman. And so as a result, our relationship deepened. We fell in love, and eventually, I you know, we got married in Zambia. So that's kind of all how it happened. And then from there, we traveled to 31 African countries. Before we get too deep into that discussion, I just wanted to interject. I have traveled with several people during the, in the continent. One of them, I traveled for several, you know, several of them for several weeks. Um, so 
there's plenty of travelers who were able to keep up with me. Josh and I, the camera guy and I just somehow, it just didn't work out. But uh, I've traveled with probably about at least five or six people for several weeks during my uh, five and a half years in Africa. So maybe, were, anyway, so. Were you traveling with them like because they wanted to come for an adventure? Or was it because there were certain times that you actually need, like it was much more beneficial for you to, to be with other people or you actually needed them to do stuff? Or was it people you met like as you were traveling through on the road? Most of them were people that I had already met and they were in, they were Americans who wanted to go on an adventure. Nobody else wants to go to some of the countries I want to go to. And so they're like, hey, I've always wanted to go to Benin. And nobody wants to go to Benin with me. So then they're like, off they come. So that's pretty much it. it and one guy, uh, one of my favorite guys, his name is Sim Blanchard. Uh, Sim is this guy who's like, at that time, he was 62 or something like that. And he walked half of Madagascar with me. He actually did the Drakensberg Traverse in South Africa, which is uh, a long trail. I can't, I think it's gonna, it takes a couple of weeks. Um, and it goes along the Lesotho and South Africa border. It's a spectacular long distance hike. And he did both of those things with me. So he came out specifically to meet me, specifically to hike with me. He loves hiking. And so that's why I met up with Sim. So different people at different parts, which is nice. I'm, I'm sure that was nice for you. Now, did you prefer that or did you prefer the solo travel and how much of it was actually you by yourself? Because obviously you didn't you didn't expect to like pick up a wife and then do the second whole half with her. How, I mean, yeah. How much was solo travel and what was it like kind of the plan going in? I, I know you said you planned to have the camera guy, but kind of didn't then plan to have the camera guy. So what did, how did it jive with what your actual, you know, thoughts were originally? He and I got into an argument right in, in Spain when we were trying to configure that we had a car that looked like a Land Rover. It's a Spanish version of Land Rover, a piece of shit, by the way, it's called the Santana, but that car, we had to configure it. How are we going to do the back? And he wanted to do it with like two side-by-side beds and basically have so camp inside the car and that kind of stuff. And I said, no, I want to be able to pick up hitchhikers. And so I want to leave the seats back there and, and, and stuff like that. So because from the get-go, Trav, I wanted this to be a journey about not having the car become a bubble. And I went through Eastern Europe taking public transportation. And I think one of the, the best things I have about, one of the things I love most about travel is the meeting with other people. And to me, that is the richest part of the travel experience, especially when you go to places that are kind of poor monuments that are short on national parks or whatever it is. So we go to Paris and we love it, but you actually speak to very few Parisians because you're sitting there in the Louvre, you're looking at the Eiffel Tower, you're doing all these things, but you're actually not talking to the French themselves, which is probably a good thing, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> but, right, but of all the places to be in a bubble, may, maybe, 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 I'm just saying, maybe that's Paris, the best Paris. By the way, disclosure, I'm half French. So anyway, the, the point is, is that uh, I wanted from the get-go, and in the end, Trav, I picked up 3,000 hitchhikers during my five years there. Yes, yeah, so the whole idea was, I so I wasn't alone a lot. 
Yeah, you're three. Wait, <laughs> yeah, because I'm th- I'm trying to do the math as you say that. At first, I thought you were going to say three, and I'm like, oh, the, the camera guy was right. Like, oh, that's that's not that many, right? Three thousand puts you at roughly two a day because you're fifteen hundred fifteen hundred days in country or in in continent. You're picking up about two hitchhikers a day. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, but it, and of course that's the average. Sure. And so some days I had thirty hitchhikers in one day. I had a one point like a dozen people in my car at once. You know, they were on the roof. They're one. They were hanging on the side because I had a, like a little like it was a step platform or something like that. So I had the windows rolled down. They were holding onto the window and sitting on the platform because what happens is that I was in such remote areas sometimes that it was muddy. It was it was it was whatever. And they needed they didn't need, but they were happy to to grab a thing. So I would sometimes I would drive by people. A lot of Africans carry stuff on their head, and I felt sorry for them. I just like, you know, shit, that is a really lot of water or, or sticks or whatever they're carrying on their head. And I would just drive by them. i say, hey, do you need a lift? And, you know, a lot of times they couldn't speak any of the languages I speak, and so, but they understood the thing. And, and, some, and usually they would say, yeah, great, and I would take them on. And other times they would flag me down because, again, public transportation – in certain remote parts, there's just no public transportation. Hitchhiking is the way to get around, but there's just not many cars. They might see one car per day. So I was that car. And so I, w- I would load up my car with hitchhikers. And, and that was a way to get to know the Africans. Because to me, what's interesting is, okay, Kenya and Tanzania are next to each other. What's the difference between Kenyans and Tanzanias? I wanted to know, you have, all right, well, here's another geographic quiz I'm going to throw at you. Oh, Do you boy. know the three Guineas? <laughs> Equatorial Guinea, um, yes. Guinea-Bissau, and yes. I guess Guinea. Oh, like yes! regular da, 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 Guinea. Da, 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 da. Yeah, <laughs> all right, yeah, all right. Yeah. I'm one for two yeah, at yeah. this point. I'm one for two on, on <laughs> quizzes on this podcast. <laughs> so, so, and then there's that other Guinea that's in, uh, in Oceana, whatever that Guinea is yeah, called. Papua, uh, New Papua, Guinea. Papua New Guinea. Yeah, yeah. right. But that's, of course not on the African continent. So I want Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, and Equatorial Guinea. What's the difference? You know, first of all, most people don't even know they fucking exist. But what, what's the difference between the people of these countries? So, I mean, for starters, in Guinea, they speak the Francophone. In Guinea-Bissau, they're Lusophone. In other words, they are Portuguese-speaking. And then in Equatorial Guinea, you'll never believe this since you love trivia, Guess what? Lang- what language they speak there as their national language? Equatorial Guinea. I, I don't know. I'm gonna. I'll venture a guess and say English. Spanish. Spanish. It's the only Spanish-speaking country in Africa. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have Spanish. You have one Spanish-speaking country. You have a a, a handful or a decent amount of um, French-speaking countries. Like you said, how no, many? Not, not hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! Not a decent amount. Half. Okay. Nearly half. half. So basically, it's all amazing. of Western Africa is is French speaking, correct? Uh, no, because Nigeria is in West Africa, uh, the biggest country, and that's Anglophone. Um, okay. Ghana, Ghana is twenty five million, but you know, uh, Nigeria is the biggest country in Africa as far as population. It's n- nearly two hundred million people who speak English. And then you have Sierra Leone is Anglophone. You have the Gambia, your favorite country, favorite. is also Anglophone. <laughs> I, I'm glad you remembered it. Definitely my favorite country in Africa. I mean, not that I've been to, been to it, but definitely the coolest geographical country and coolest name because 
The the anything that's put to the yeah, exactly right. come on I love it all right so you <laughs> you've got a lot of French speaking countries one Spanish speaking country how many Portuguese speaking countries five five how many English speaking countries do you know that off the top of your head about twenty okay and then are there any other I mean obviously there are a multitude of other languages um but any other European languages or or that are spoken throughout the Arabic, Arabic. okay. That makes sense. Yeah, Arabic is the big one in North Africa, also Sudan, that kind of stuff. So it's not a European, obviously, but it's it's right. it's not what we think of. Uh, a it's major a, it's a language. language. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, crazy. Yeah. And, and and here's the other thing that's interesting is that uh, there are some pretty major languages in Africa that nobody's heard about. Thing is, for example, Hausa. Hausa is a language that's spoken by at least 25 million people, so it's much more. Uh, people who are speaking that than, let's say, Finnish or uh, Swedish. or <laughs> So 25 million people speak Hausa. My wife speaks uh, a language that also has over 20 million speakers. It's called Fulfulde or Fulani is her tribe. Um, so there are these um, languages that kind of span across Africa. Uh, the other interesting thing is that there's very few countries in Africa where they have a national language. One is Botswana. They have uh, <clears throat> they have a kind of a national language, which is not English. Um, Madagascar is another example. They have Malagasy. They speak Malagasy. And again, it's pretty universal. And there's a funny thing that happens when you're dealing with countries that have this uh, national language. It becomes irritating because I get so comfortable because I speak uh, Portuguese. I speak Spanish. I speak French. I speak. Because I, I can struggle very badly in Arabic. So I can pretty much get away anywhere but with the five mainstream languages of Africa. But when I got to Madagascar, a lot of people didn't speak French, even though it's a Francof- it's a, it was a French colony. Same uh, th- in Botswana, a lot of people, well, actually, Botswana's pretty good. They do speak English. But when a, when a language reaches critical mass, then uh, the the overarching the colonial language is not as strong because they had something that united them before the colonialists happened or after the colonialists happened. Uh, another example is Tanzania. Really hard to find an Eng- a good English speaker in Tanzania because Swahili is such a popular language and promoted by the government. When the when Tanzania was created um, after the they got their independence, the president made this big issue saying we need a national language that's not English. And so they went ahead and they pushed Swahili and they wanted to make it a pan-African or at least pan-Eastern African language. And they uh, succeeded just with Tanzania, didn't really catch on in Kenya or in Uganda. How helpful do you think? I mean, this is hard to answer because you do speak those languages, but how much of a help was it that you were able to speak all the main languages of of Africa or all the all the ones that we talked about, all the um, major languages that then actually are spoken in Africa? Like, what would be the difference if I went speaking basically only English um, and you went saying, all right, well, I could I could speak French and you talked about the camera guy having a difficult time? Would it I mean, obviously it would be possible, but how much harder would it be for me to go and do that? versus you who is able to speak those languages and be able to communicate. You'd be totally fucked, dude. 
completely <laughs> fucked. And that's why I didn't do it. There we go. See, All right. <laughs> because that would be my no. my guess would be it would be inf- infinitely harder, like almost yeah. Im- almost impossible. I mean, you could get through, but it would just not be the same type of experience in any way. Yes, it would be a very, yes, you could certainly do it. And people have done it. You know, people have traveled all over Africa speaking only English. It's just a real, real challenge. Um, You know, it's interesting. A lot of people, you know, ask me about Eastern Europe versus Africa. And in some ways, Africa was easier for me to travel in because I spoke almost every common language. You know, I could communicate with most people. I could communicate. Most Africans, I can communicate. I couldn't communicate with pretty much anybody unless they spoke English and almost nobody spoke French. Nobody speaks Spanish. Um, so it was English was my only thing I had st- to stand on in Eastern Europe. And it was it's not that popular, at least certainly not when I went. It's getting more popular every day. But so so Africa was actually easier. But here's the thing why the language thing really makes a big difference in Africa. In Africa, you constantly, constantly have to negotiate. And that's the challenge. You're constantly negotiating with border p- officials. You're con- if you have a car, you have to negotiate getting the car. You have to explain where you're coming from, what you're doing, da-da-da. Now, Africans, God bless them, they are extremely accommodating people. They are different than Eastern Europeans. Eastern Europeans, even if they speak English, they're often assholes to you. And because they're assholes to themselves, by the way. Um, so it's, at first you take it personally. Like, why is that guy such a dick? And because they're dicks, everybody there, they're just grumpy people. Eastern Europeans can be that way. And I mean that in a good way, of course. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, you spent three and a half years there. So obviously you enjoy people being an asshole to you. (laughs) I love it, dude. I totally love it. So, um, but then, um, with, and Africans are very different. They are bent over backwards. So here's the thing. In some ways, Trav, if you have a choice between trying to communicate with an African who doesn't speak English or any of your languages is sometimes easier than trying to communicate with an Eastern European who does speak English because the African is accommodating. He wants to try to understand you. He wants to try to help you in general. I mean, of course, you get the border guards sometimes can be a bit of a, you know, difficult, but even the border guards who are difficult in the end, they are kind of, they're easygoing in in the end. So, so there's that. But still, it, it would be really, really hard to travel all 54 African countries speaking only English. But it can be done. It can be done. I wouldn't say it's much, much harder just because the level of negotiation you have to do on a day-to-day level, um, it's, it's, it's huge. And here's another thing is that Africans are verbal people. Eastern Europeans are more either written or uh, insular people. Eastern Europeans are kind of closed in, kind of uh, shire people in general, I'm, I'm throwing a huge generalization out there, but, uh, because the Balkans, people are more friendly and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the point is, is that Africans are extremely extroverted, very extroverted. And so you would love it because you're an extrovert. Yeah. I just need to learn four more languages and then I can, then I can go on the trip <laughs> or I need to just go with you. They start talking to me. I just start pointing like, yo, ne- negotiate with this guy. He's been through every country and speaks all your languages. Here you go. Um, well, speaking of being hard, what were some of the harder challenges that you faced? Like, let's, let's start, let's start first with like some of the harder countries that you traveled through and why those were harder than other ones. Yeah, definitely the, the the biggest irritant of all of Africa is the visa and border process, by far and away. 
you know, there's terrible, terrible roads. Nobody's on time. Things don't work. Electricity is not functioning. Water is not running a lot of times and on and on. You can look at these problems. But to me, those aren't problems, whatever. They're just temporary setbacks, whatever. There's solutions around them. But the border guards and especially the visa process, you just can. There's no alternative. It's not a free market. They've got a monopoly. You have to deal with them. And to me, by far and away, head over. That is the biggest uh, difficulty in traveling through Africa, uh, especially in the parts that are not touristic. So a lot of people who are listening to this say, what the fuck is this guy idiot talking about? You know, I went to Morocco. I just got in there. It was smooth as day. I went to Tanzania or Kenya. There was no problem. I went to South Africa. I know, no problem. I'm like, yeah, that's part of Africa, dude. Egypt is easy because they're touristic. But try to go to Niger, try to go to Chad, try to go overland to Darfur, try to go through the Democratic Republic of Congo and see how long you last. Driving, across, I drove across the whole fucking Democratic Republic of Congo. Try to do that. And, you know, it ain't fucking easy, dude. And go to Central African Republic. Talk about going to getting a visa. If you're not an American, try to get a visa to Equatorial Guinea. Sorry, to uh, yeah, Equatorial Guinea is the hardest, one of the hardest countries to get a visa. Try to get a visa to fucking Eritrea. It's like North Korea, dude. This is not easy shit. And so, uh, if you're trying to go to all 54 African countries, it's a big uphill battle for that kind of shit. Well, so, what did you do? I mean, because you also obviously you can't get some in advance because you're going to be there originally three years turned out to five. So you can't say, Oh, I'm going to plan this out and, and like cross all my um, T's and dot all my I's before I go. That's not even feasible. Can't, oh, I want a visa for Eritrea or Eritrea uh, in four and a half years. Right. They're going to be like, okay. So what, I mean, how, how did you, how did you do that? How did you swing it? Was it just going to a lot of consulates in the countries like before the ones that you had to get visas for? Yeah, that's the only way. Uh, because look, and the, here's and, and that was a pain in the ass. But here's where it's a real pain in the ass. There are at least five African countries, and probably more, but at least five that require you to get your visa from your home country. So from Washington, fucking D.C., dude. So. How are you going to swing that? Because Democratic Republic of Congo, they insist that you get it from your home country. So I have three passports. So my home country, I could get it from the, the embassy of in Washington, D.C. I could go to Paris because I'm French. And I could go to Santiago, Chile because I'm Chilean. So I have three passports. But guess what? places are close to africa yeah none of them are in none of them are in africa i i do know that my geographic knowledge might be less than yours but i know that dc chile and paris not not in africa that's right that's right right so so that made it those countries were really hard to get a to get a visa for really really difficult because they would insist at every embassy so here's how i did it i went I, I, some of those countries, I knew what they were, like Nigeria is one of them. So as soon as you find a Nigerian embassy on the journey, you try there. And then they say no. So then you try again. Like Algeria is another one. Algeria, I tried through four different embassies. When I finally got to Chad, I found an Al uh, a council, uh, uh, I guess the council was able to listen to me. And this is the thing that's hard is that a lot of embassies in general, they make it, they're, they're, they're not that, uh, they're not that friendly. Um, and so they're not, 
ambassadors. <laughs> They're not good ambassadors. And so it becomes really challenging because you can't even, I'm like, can you just listen to me? I'm talking to their fucking secretary. I'm like, can I just talk to the ambassador? Can I talk to the counselor? I explain why my journey is a bit of an exception to the rule. I'm like, no, you can't have a meeting or write a letter and then we'll think about it. And so some processes for me, it took me about the longest I ever took to get a visa was I think probably the Nigerian visa took me to, I got three Nigerian visas because I went there three different times. And the, the first two times were easy because I had a connection, which is huge. But the third time I didn't have a connection and that took me two months to get the fucking visa. And then another time to get to the visa to Niger took one month. And this is repeated and Chad visa took like about a month as well repeated visits to the embassy trying to just begging 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 it's it's just so you were staying so when you did that for example um like the chad visa you were staying in what what country ended up giving you the visa to chad what where were you like what consulate were you going to i was in in niami which is the capital of I don't know. <laughs> one for I'm one I'm one for three. I'm not even going to guess there. The capital of Niger. All right, Niger. Some people say Niger, but you should say Niger. Yeah, I, I and my pronunciation, like I said, Eritrea. I'm, it's Eritrea. Like so, my pronunciation. Yeah, do do as Francis does, not as I do. All right, so you're in Niger, and you, yes. so you stayed in Niger. Obviously, you were doing other stuff there, but you stayed there until you were able to get the visa for Chad because you're like, hey, I got to keep going to this same one because if I leave here and have to go to another consulate, now it's like it's starting this process all over again. Right. And it was a f- I stayed four months in in, <laughs> in Niger, actually, in the end, but not because, uh, because my car was broken down for, for that long, believe it or not. Um, but but yeah, it was a tough, tough process. Um, and sometimes I would move on to the next country. I would just give it a shot and move on. Like, uh, and sometimes I just luck out, you know, uh, I, but, but anyway, that's, that's the real tough part about traveling in Africa is just the visa process. But here's the good news is that it's getting better. For example, another country that was very difficult, Angola, they also insist that you get it, you know, go fly to Washington DC, get your fucking visa and come back to Angola, which of course was a deal killer for me. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And in the end, they gave me a five-day transit visa to drive through the country. Um, you can only get it in a certain place. You can't even get it from the capital of um, of the DRC, which is? Uh, could be the first letter. K- 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 Kigali. K- Kinshasa. Kinshasa. All right. Uh, yes. Kigali is in Rwanda, so I know that now. Okay. Yes, All that's right. right. That's right. Yeah, but right. It's, if it starts with a K, you're good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, Kinshasa, which is actually the, is going to be the biggest, uh, Lagos and, and Kinshasa are two of the biggest cities in the Sub-Sahara. Anyway, they for, are. For, for what that's I worth, the because from the Embassy of Angola. Sub-Sahara, we don't know what that is anyway, right? So, exactly, right. <laughs> the ill-defined. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so basically, yeah, it's, it's, it was uh, a tough process. But here's the thing. Angola now gives pizza, people visas on demand, like on arrival, I think, for people who are coming from basically rich countries like the United States and Europe. So they changed their visa process. They made it. Senegal uh, went back to a visa on arrival 
uh, they first started tried to charge people 50 bucks and that didn't work they did that for two years and that failed experiment and they realized tourists are not coming they're not that special and so anyway so it's really getting better in africa and here's the real humiliating thing trap and this is we, we can touch on this very briefly as hard as it was for me it was infinitely easier for me than it was for my wife who's a fucking african she's from cameroon and she could not get into countries nearly as easy as I could get into African countries. And that would just irk her. Give you an example. Ethiopia. I can get a visa to Ethiopia. Two-year visa to Ethiopia. Can you believe it? As an American, it's automatic. It's easy. You can just get it. You apply. Boom. You got it. I, I, was, I was applying for this in Sudan. I think I was in Khartoum, in the capital of, of Sudan. She went and she could not get it. I had to beg and beg and go back multiple times, beg and beg. And finally they gave it. And she was crying. She was crying because she's like, Africa is my continent. Why can't I visit my own fucking, I'm not trying to go to Sweden. I'm not trying to go to Switzerland. I just want, and they're also black like me. Why can't I go in? And she, it was a very, very humiliating process for her. And here's a, one other story. I'll tell you, last one, I'll tell you, with regard to her trying to get a visa. We went, we were in Nairobi, which is the capital of Kenya. That that's an easy one. Thank that's you. a, that's a, that's a softball <laughs> right there, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate well, I it. I need, I need a little bit of pride here. <laughs> so, um, so we were in Nairobi and she, uh, we went together to the Tanzania embassy to get ourselves a visa. And I sat down in the waiting room and she went up to the counter and she was sitting there for a long time and they were bombarding. I didn't know it at the time, but they were bombarding her with questions like, why are you going? What are you doing? Da, 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 what's this? You know, da, 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 and being very skeptical and being very difficult with her. I walked up right there and I says, hey, how's it going, honey? And then who was questioning her says, who is this? And she says, he's my husband. OK, come back on Tuesday. You'll pick up the visa. <laughs> Just seeing my silly white face made him drop all his questioning, his interrogation. He just said, oh, you're good to go. Boom. They are so, it's what I call reverse racism. People say reverse racism is when a black person doesn't like a white person. To me, that's just racism. Reverse racism is when you like another race more than your own race. <laughs> and that is something that's very prevalent in Africa. Yeah, that is that's tough. And, and especially for her. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. Like, you're frustrated for her. And so you, but she's sitting there saying, all I want to do is, is see my own continent, like, like be around people who are very, very similar to me. Bring it back to her because you mentioned that you met on, on Badu. I think you said it was the, what the Tinder app, but we'll just say you met her hitchhiking because that's a fun story anyway. Um, yeah, she was one of the 30 people in the car at one point, um, but, but bring it back to that. She was sitting on my lap. <laughs> yeah. What, what, um. Like, what were her thoughts? All right, so you say, you come in, you guys meet, you think, hey, this is someone I'm going to meet, this is neat, whatever, but I'm on this quest, I'm on this journey, and and I, I assume you start to tell her about it pretty quickly. Hey, what are you doing here? Oh, oh by the way, I'm doing this. What, I mean, what did she think? Like, that that's, that's probably not what she expected you to be doing. Oh, I'm going to all 54 African countries. I'm like two years in, I got three more years. What was her reaction? Uh, you know, it, it always surprises anybody. I mean, certainly Africans, uh, 
but she was adventurous. I mean, she was kind of a nomad herself. She grew up in uh, uh, Nigeria. She spent most of her life in Nigeria, and she had gone to Chad. She had gone to uh, uh, to Cameroon. Obviously, that's where she's she's from. So she kind of nomadic. Uh, she comes from a tribe. The Fulani tribe are nomads. They have their cattle. And they often they're kind of seasonal nomads, so they go chasing the the grass that they that their cattle can eat, and so so as it it was an adventuresome idea, but it wasn't completely foreign to her the idea of just kind of picking up and moving all the time, picking up and moving all the time. It was not complete because of her tribe and where she's from and and her own life. So it was the transition wasn't as as crazy as as you might think. So that, the, the, for her, the biggest transition was when she went to um, Algeria. That was hard for her because it was the first time in her life where she was a minority. In other words, she felt her blackness. Uh, I think I can't remember that famous woman who a Nigerian author who's done some TED Talks. I can't pronounce her name. Anyway, she said that she didn't realize she was black until. And because when you're think about it, if you're black in Africa, like everybody's black in Africa, there's nothing. But you see white people, of course, who are visiting, but you don't feel your blackness until you like go to Eastern Europe, and then you're like, "Fuck, I'm black." <laughs> That's a wake up call, and and it's just different. And so for her, when she landed into Algeria, and so like boom, because that was one of the only times we actually took a plane within the continent. Uh, we landed there, and she just like felt so self-conscious. It was strange. It's kind of like how you and I might feel, or any white person feels, when they're just dumped in the middle of Sierra Leone. You feel your whiteness. <laughs> yeah, for all those times that I've been dumped in the middle of Sierra Leone, I can I can certainly <laughs> relate to, to what your wife felt. <laughs> yeah, I would be I would have a lot of feelings going through me being dumped in Sierra Leone. Probably not many of them positive. I'd be like, oh boy, what language do they speak here? French. Okay, well, whoops. Um, what well, what about how did it change the trip for you? Because I, like we said, like you weren't expecting, I don't think, to pick up a a not only a travel companion for the second half of the trip, but also then a life companion. So what? Yeah, what was the change for you? And and I don't want to ask you if you think it turned out better or worse, because I'm sure better because that that's why it happened. But yeah, what were the what were the differences that you noticed between the first half of the trip and then the second half of the trip when you were when you were with your wife? Yeah, you know, it's 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 not necessarily better. It's just different. Um, it's it's a different experience. Um, when, as you know, when you travel with Heather, your wife, um, there's a tendency when you're with a companion. It doesn't have to be your wife. It can be another guy. It can be anybody. Um, there's a tendency for you to turn and face the other person. When you're alone, you face out. When you're with somebody or a group, you face into the group or you face into the person. And so that can have an impact on the travel. It, it, it can be a good bonding experience, but it can be dangerous in if you're with the people and to know the culture and to understand the culture. So um, there's a little bit of that that I knew I was going to suffer from. I knew I was going to, I was going to have to make an explicit effort to really bond with people. So I continued picking up hitchhikers, um, even when she was there and I would make sure I would communicate, but she sat in the front. Um, so the hitchhikers, but still we could communicate. Um, that was one of the, the differences, but there's many benefits that came from having her. First of all, she's black. And so she, it instantly made people less skeptical about me. 
and less like, oh, you're the white invader coming in here. I mean, maybe they, some people thought that you already grabbed one of our women and you're running off with our women, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, but basically, I think more people said, okay, this guy is sympathetic to us. He's not coming out here to just exploit us and whatever and stuff like that. So there was that. So instant bonding, and a lot of people say, okay, he's not a racist. He's not looking down on us. He's not somebody who's just like judging us. And so that kind of changed the dynamics of things immediately. I think there was a, an instant welcoming, like, oh, he's white, but he's kind of one of us. <laughs> he's in our tribe now, you know, because he's with this black woman. And even though Rejoice is from the different country, because like I said, we went to 31 countries with uh, Rejoice, there was that aspect. And the second thing that I gained uh, from having her around, which I never expected, is women. In other words, she was able to go, let's say, in North Africa, it's a, it's a society where men and women are divided. And she got to meet women that I was not even able to look in their face. There's parts of Algeria, um, parts of, of, of um, Egypt even, but where you cannot interact much at all with the women. So she could go off and talk with those women and come back and tell me what she saw and experienced. I would have never had that insight because those societies in North Africa, those Arabic societies, they're segregated on one side, women on the other, and there's very little interaction, except in the modern capitals and that kind of stuff. There's a little bit more. But even in the modern capitals, it's still pretty segregated. It's kind of taboo to start talking to a girl. Then they're thinking, oh, you're hitting up on her, whatever, that kind of stuff. What, what so did, what did th- her, those are some of the insights. Yeah, what did her family and, and, and her tribe and her community think when a she was like, all right, I'm going to go off with this guy on this adventure, and then oh, like later on, oh, by the way, we're going to get married. Did that was that a yeah? Tell me about that experience of of like, did you have to ask for her hand in marriage? Like what what was it like? Because that's a pretty unique unique situation that not many people are going to go through. Yeah, and that is something that I had a unique experience there too, because most almost every single African country has a bride price. So you would have to give money, cows, something to Heather. You could not just, I mean, all you gave her is maybe a ring. Yeah. like You didn't give her family. No, no. That, yeah. I, I only gave her a ring. I did not give her family a, a bunch of cows. I certainly didn't give them a bunch of money either. <laughs> right. And so that's American culture, right? And so you didn't buy her. But in Africa, you might have to buy her father a car. You might have to, you know, donate a bunch of clothes or buy a new bed or, or whatever, stuff like that. There is a bride price, and that is pretty much universal in all of Africa. And so the, the, the what's, I was all expecting to do it, but here's the thing. Her, she was an orphan at the age of 14. Her, her, her father died at the age of nine when she was nine. Her mother died when, when she was 14. So by the age of 14, she and she only had one brother, which again, one uh, same blood brother. And, and so that's very unusual to have a small family and to not have either parent. She had a grandmother, but she, her grandmother was in Chad. All her grandparents pretty much dead. So it was a very unique situation, very unusual, where I, she had to basically uncles. And she told me, oh, Francis, you just get a colon nut. Do you know what a colon nut is? No. I mean, no, I have no it, idea. There's, yeah, okay. So cola nuts, they're about the size of a walnut, and they're very popular in lots of places in Africa. And you, they're kind of uh, stimulant. 
So they're kind of like a caffeine high, and you chew on them, and you, you chew them like cud. You know, you're just chewing and chewing. Anyway, they're very popular. So she said, just get my, de- my uncle a bag of cola nuts, and he'll be good to go. And so I said, okay, great. Do you want to just verify that? Because that's what she supposed. So then she sat down and talked with her uncle, and her uncle just pulled out a piece of paper. Well, to begin with, you know, he needs to give a, you know, a million sefa or whatever stuff like that. You know, it's thousands of dollars to them. Then we're gonna have to hire, a, you know, this thing. We're gonna have to bring this. this. And he started listing a whole bunch of the bride price, and she was just like, "Fuck you, uncle. <laughs> I'm not gonna give you any of this shit." So. That was uh, so she was unusual because she was able to leave her family because her family was basically she was very loose ties, and that's very unusual. But had I married a traditional, a normal African, then I would have there was a lot more connection with the family, and then you have to go through a lot of hoops. They would have said yes, um, and that's one of the things that's kind of upsetting about uh, the way things you know, marriage. This is going to be a thing that might offend some of your listeners, but in, I think in Africa, marriage is more about money and economics than it is about love. In fact, I got to the point, Trav, where I thought to myself, love doesn't exist in Africa between couples often. It's just a, a, a mechanism to produce babies and to have economic security and whatever, or to have a house cleaner or whatever, stuff like that. It's, and I'm not saying it's for everybody. It's one of those things. And before everybody gets all excited on me, that's the way it was through most of the planet, including European society, including American society. It was a transaction. You marry somebody in the family to either expand the family or do something. Was, there was a purpose. It wasn't for love. Marriage for love is something that's happened in the last 100 years. Yeah, you, you are right. Uh, well, I mean, I don't I can't speak to the to what is like in Africa today, but I mean, over time and throughout history, it was much more transactional. Like, oh, let's, you know, you marry into this elite family and this elite family, and now we have business partnership, whatever, you know. And everyone knows that kind of, you know, with, with the European royal families and stuff like that way back in the day. So that that is really interesting. Now, did the uncle get the bag of cola nuts? Or, or was it like when she said <laughs> F you, he was like, like he, he didn't get anything? Or did he at least like relent and be like, all right, I'll take the bag? No, he basically got nothing. I mean, in, in the end, after like I think we were married at that point for two years, because the last country, the last country, but as the, the tail end of our after I saw Egypt, Egypt was the last country that I had to check off the list. We did eventually go back to Tanzania and then back to to um, Cameroon, and that's when I saw him. I met him face to face for the first time. But then we had already been married for over a year and a half or something like that, and I think I bought him bottle of whiskey <laughs> but uh you know he would have liked a lot more but he was cordial i mean that's a beautiful thing about africans they're not confrontational people they're not confrontational people they just they want to keep the peace they want to keep you know keep everybody happy and smiling so they may be furious inside but they'll they'll rarely show it to you and by then you're kind like, of like right. japanese right yeah yeah very 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 much like the japanese um very true yeah it's like and and you know like like it's like they might be cordial you, you basically know but you're like well i appreciate you not exploding on me i know you're <laughs> upset but hey uh i'm just gonna pretend to be naive to it and leave and that's that right okay cool if you're not gonna yeah if you're not gonna like make an issue of it then certainly i'm not and and then you go on your way so you mentioned that you were in morocco much longer than you thought i'm interested i'm not going to make you go through all 54 countries and and your and your whole timeline but which of the ones 
did you spend less time in? Like, which were the ones that you that you went through quickly, and then which were the ones that you actually had to spend more time in, either because something came up or because you were waiting for visas or what have you? Yeah, my biggest regret by far is Togo. Togo is where? Togo is Central <laughs> West Africa. Well, that's a kind of a hedging there. It's Central West East Southern Africa. <laughs> uh, I, it's sub European. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's West Africa, dude. Um, you're right. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll give we'll give you that. <laughs> a half point. A half point. <laughs> I know. I know you love geography, Trav. So I, so that's why I'm. I, I do, yeah. and I you could keep peppering me. I I should have I should have freshened up on my African geography before <laughs> before popping on this uh, pod. But hey, I'll, I'll keep trying. I'll keep trying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so Togo was. We talked about this, I think, on our our first podcast uh, way back, um, and. Togo was fascinating to me for the same reason Comoros is fascinating to me and the same reason that Gambia is fascinating to you, right? It's that who the fuck has ever heard of Togo and what, you know, what language they speak in Togo, you know, what, how, you know, what does a Togolese person look like? I have no idea. So, so I wanted to spend, I want to be the world's foremost expert on Togo. I want to be like when CNN makes the call, they call me, you know, I'm the Togo guy. Uh, but in, but in the end, I went to Togo twice, but if you add up the cumulative time, I spent maybe about 10 days there, maximum two weeks. And I, disappointing. I want to give Togo my five-week average and really get to know the country. So that was unfortunate. I kind of, but that was logistics. A lot of things that drove it, everything was my car. My car was giving me so many problems in West Africa. It forced me to spend a lot less time in some countries and because I was racing through them to get to the next one before my visa expired. And then other countries... I spent too much time in because the car was fucking broken down and the mechanics would take months to fix it. Did you did you have the same car the whole time? No. No. So in so I was giving me so many problems for that first year, year and a half that I finally uh, and I want I would have loved to trade it in earlier or dump it. But again, I had visas in sync and just buying a car in Africa seemed like a massive headache that I want to avoid. So I wait, I postponed it, and I always thought that the next repair was going to be the repair that was going to finish everything. I said, just one more. Just get this new uh, stupid thing. I replaced the engine a couple of times. I mean, I did all sorts of things. I kept thinking that this time, it's the last time I'm, for, you know, I'm going to have to do such a major repair. But it just was perennial. And so in the end, what I did is I bought a brand new Toyota Hilux, which is like a Toyota pickup truck, very popular in Africa. And it was $30,000, and you'll love this, Trav. Guess how I paid for it? I paid for it in cash. They wouldn't take credit card, no wire transfer, nothing else. They paid, I had to pay cash. So I had to wire this guy money, who was uh, uh, a Lebanese guy who was born in, in Benin. And he took out like 5000 in cash in their local currency, which is the Sefa, which produced huge bricks. And after the course of about a week, he had $30,000 in cash in their local currency, and then we could buy the Toyota brand new. Is, is that because you weren't in that country? Like, what if, what if someone who was from, because what country did you buy that in? In Benin? Benin. Yeah, so Benin. if someone yeah. was Be Beninese, I don't know if that's yes, yes, Beninese, yeah, yeah, someone was right. Beninese and they were there, would they also have to buy it in cash? Like, would they have to do the same thing, essentially? They have to go to the ATM and yeah. take out 
the most amount they could per day and just keep going and eventually right. like get a yeah. dump truck and bring the bricks of cash over and dump it in the I'm I'm picturing like they're dumping it in like the foyer of the car dealership. Just like this stack of cash so they get the keys and drive off. Well, that's why I bought a Toyota Hilux just to load it up with cash in the pickup <laughs> and dump it off. But no, but uh, no, I think, look, I'm not 100% sure, but I think, no, they would do some sort of transfer between their banks. So there they could do it, but I didn't have a local bank account. And I can't remember why the car dealer didn't want to take my international wire. I had to go through somebody else to to do it. I can't remember the details, but it was just stupid like that. They, I think everybody has to pay in cash. I don't know. It's it's look, and that's another thing about Africa that a lot of people think. You know, I tell people Africa is a cash based society, and they're like, "No, it's not." I went to South Africa and I paid on a Visa card. I didn't use my. I'm like, dude, South Africa is different. Um, it's just you know so. When I, you know, they go to Seychelles, they go to Mauritius, you know, like I, I paid a lot of things with a credit card. Well, first of all, dude, you stayed at a fucking nice hotel. Second of all, you went to a fucking nice restaurant. And, and third of all, you know, you, 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 you took a rent a car from Hertz or whatever. And you probably, I don't know, the only thing you had to pay in cash, maybe it was, and you know, the, the what's called the filling stations as they call them. Uh, uh, gas, gas stations. stations yeah. 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 So you, know, you can tell I've been spending too many times in Africa. Uh, Anglophones call them filling stations. They don't call them gas stations. Um, that's another pet peeve I have with the English language, the American English language, that we call gas gas. We should call it petroleum or, you know, just like the British, the petrol. We should call it petrol. Because yeah, gas I, is. Like, I agree. Yeah. Because you're like, you have natural gas, you have oil. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, a general term that you're like, well, no, these aren't the same thing. Like, don't try filling your car up with that type of gas because that's not going to work. Um, what did, were you able to keep any type of budget? Like, do you have any idea how much the whole five years cost? And, and if you want to share it, that'd be great. And, and did you go in with a certain budget and was that blown to bits or did you actually find that, that you either stayed under or hit it fairly well? Yeah. You know, I was thinking that I could, I could get by with about, I think, what was it? One or $2,000. I think it's $2,000 a month is what I originally guessed that it would cost. Um, something like that. And in the end I spent, uh, I'm guesstimating. This is a complete guess. Not, not educated guess, uh, $110,000 for the five years. So, you know, roughly, let's just say a little bit more than twenty, $22,000 a year, which ends up, let's just say $24,000 a year. That's about $2,000 a month. So, and that includes the car that I bought, which I then resold as I got out. So, um, really cheap trip. If you think about it, yeah, you know, why do a you lot think- of people, why do you think that is like, why do you think you were able to do it? Because that those numbers, I mean, 110,000 sounds like a lot, but you have to remember, Hey, Francis there for five, over five years. Um, yeah. 24,000 a year. I mean, obviously feasible for a lot of people, probably less, you know, you hear people going on around the world trips and, and things like that. Um, you know, 24,000, it's going to be very hard if you're doing your quote unquote, typical around the world trip of getting on planes and going to different areas of the world. Why, why do you think, you were able to keep it at that level. Was it the way you traveled? Was it be just the places you were going through? Yeah, definitely the way I travel. I mean, I am definitely a budget traveler for sure. Um, there's a ways that you can spend a lot of money in Africa, but I didn't take it those ways. Um, you do have to spend a lot of money on visas. That's the, the surprising thing. Visas can sometimes cost over a hundred dollars, $200. Um, and, the plane flights are extremely expensive. 
you know, you can just flying to Comoros was 350 bucks from Dar Salaam, which is just a puddle jump uh, to go to do that. And that was one way ticket. Um, a lot of the, the island nations there, they're expensive. Again, that is changing. There are now Rwanda Air, I think, is, is coming in and it's coming in with cheaper flights and that kind of stuff. Ethiopian Airlines, uh, Kenyan Airways, all these places are becoming a little bit more competitive and uh, offering more options. But airline flights are expensive. But the key thing is, look, where do you spend your money on? You spend it on travel. So, of course, I had my own car, so all I had to do is fill up the gas. In some countries, like in Nigeria, which is oil-rich, uh, uh, gas is cheaper, or should I say petroleum is cheaper than water. Um and there's several countries there that, that have that kind of really cheap petroleum. Second of all is um, lodging. I camped uh, probably a third of the time. I couch surfed a lot as well, um, especially in the major capitals and cities. Um, I always There's a lot of cheap hotels. You can spend um, less than $10 a night easily and get a, a proper hotel room. Uh, it may not have reliable running water. It may not have reliable electricity, um, but... Anyway, you can. There are cheap places to stay, and Africa is. Here's another thing that a lot of people don't realize: Africa has the same density as the United States, so it's about thirty something people per square kilometer. Now, think about traveling through. Imagine you're spending three years traveling all over America. Would it be easy to camp travel travel? Uh, yeah, in it definitely in certain parts, especially right. yeah. Yeah, and you've got the West, for example, in the United States, Wyoming, you've got Nebraska. I mean, shit, there's, there's a lot of space in America. Well, the same density exists in Africa. So, therefore, you've got these vast regions in Africa where there's fucking nobody, and it's actually easy to camp. So there are, and, and, and in between towns, between cities, there's multitude of places. And here's the last thing. This is like Malawi which is one of the densest countries. Rwanda, Malawi, and Uganda are not Uganda, sorry, Malawi, uh, Burundi, Burundi, Rwanda, and Malawi are the three of the most dense countries in Africa. Even there, like Malawi was the only place I had trouble taking a shit because I would usually just pull aside on the road and take, you know, take a dump. But I couldn't find any place in Malawi to do that because it was constantly people, 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 people. It just, it was insane. It was crazy. Um, I, I was hard just to take a piss. Um, and it was, I traveled from the north to the south of Malawi and it was just constant stream of people. But there you go to a village in Malawi, you just go up to anybody and just say, Hey, can I camp here next to your hut, your mud hut or whatever you got? And no, 90 99% of the time they'll say, yeah, sure. And you give them some money, you just give them cash. And that's another thing. It's not this, they don't get offended. It's not rude. In fact, they'll be delighted if you give them cash for a favor. In America, like you do something nice for somebody and it says, hey, thanks for showing me directions. Here's $2. People are like, hey, dude, I'm just doing it to be nice, dude, right? No, Africans are like, thank you for the $2. Thank you very much. I'll take that. <laughs> By the so, way, do you need another favor? You could camp a second night if you want. You know? <laughs> exactly. Right, exactly. So, so yeah. So basically, uh, there's th that's kind of what would happen. That density that is shocking to me, and it, it's shocking because I'm not sure if if you had asked me that question, hey, is Africa as a continent more or less dense than the United States? I I almost don't know what answer I would have given you. I just am shocked that it is similar. I, I think I would have assumed that maybe it was less dense than the United States and said, okay, well, you know, wide open areas with, with no one around ever. Do you, is it, 
is it the same type of density? Like, like where you would say, okay, when you go to the U.S., we know out west, very, you know, there are big cities, but then it's really wide open. You go on the East Coast, you know, there it's very, very dense for a long stretch here. Obviously, you go into California, very dense for a stretch. Is that how the density kind of fleshes itself out with big open areas and then, you know, some, a few spots that are, that are pretty, pretty dense? No, it doesn't. Um, they are less urbanized. I can't remember the statistic, but I'm going to guess that maybe 60 something percent of Africans live in urbanized areas. Um, maybe six, maybe two thirds live in urbanized areas, but that's rapidly, rapidly changing. Africa is urbanizing at an unprecedented rate. So that's changing, but they have more of what I like this term. I don't know if I invented it, but rural sprawl. Rural <laughs> so sprawl. All instead, right. Rural sprawl. Word to say. Maybe that's why nobody else says it. <laughs> but um, you know, people talk about suburban sprawl and you know, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I call it rural sprawl. In other words, you're not really a suburb is a suburb, right? You know, you, we all know what a suburb looks like. Africa doesn't really have many suburbs. They have either villages. Or they have, you know, cities, and they don't really have too many suburbs. But the villages in certain places, like Malawi, for example, they just they're just string one after another, one after another, one after another. And there's a lot of places like that. So there's that what I call rules. They're all farmers. They're just they're farming, and it just goes on and on and on and on. But there's it's not that dense. But in some ways, it is kind of dense because, you know, you can't go more than five kilometers and not see somebody else. I mean, it's, it's not like wide open space, except, of course, the obvious, obvious exception is the Sahara and, uh, and the uh, Kalahari Desert and, and, and other major deserts. But the thing is, in West Africa, it, you, know, that you see that rural sprawl a lot where you just have village, 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 nonstop. And so... So it's a different type of den- it's 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 the same density overall, but it's just in a different laid way. Out different. Yeah. Okay. You're that's, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. It's just yeah. It's a fascinating thing because again, I I I guess I never thought of African density as as a whole, right? Like you know, there's big cities, and then you know, of course, like hey, there's villages. Of course, you know, the Sahara Desert, you know, nomadic people coming through, but not not many people actually living there. When uh, when you had touched down in Africa when you first got into Morocco. Had you been to Africa before, or is that the first time you had been on the continent? Um, first time. Okay, so you had not experienced Africa at all before you started this this five-and-a-half-year journey, which I love, which is <laughs> awesome, because if you're going to do it, right? Like, you might as well yeah. go all in, as you go. mentioned. What were some of the—okay, so then what were some of the— oh, oh. Yeah, go ahead. Hold on. Can I can I can I interject one other thing about the density thing before we move on to the next topic? The thing that a lot of people um, don't realize, or I guess maybe they do realize, but the point is, is that Africa is reproducing at a crazy rate. Uh, you know, the the population. So the density. Here's here's statistics that will blow your mind. A um, hundred years ago, I think it's five or ten percent of the human beings were Africans. About a hundred years ago. Five or ten percent of human beings are Africans. In a hundred years, most human beings will be Africans. <laughs> okay. Just just digest that statistic. 
So they went from being one in 20 people was an African of Homo sapiens, and now over 50% of Homo sapiens will be African. In in 100 that years. Is, so like in, in 20, 2100 or whatever we're looking yeah, at. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that is the... Now, again, assuming they don't have a demographic collapse, right? Now, another here's another statistic. It was fascinating. About five, 10 years ago, the United Nations Population Division did a thought experiment. They said, what would happen if for the next 500 years, there's absolutely no change in population uh, reproduction rate? If, you know, so right now, Italy is producing 1.3 children. They continue doing 1.3 children. Uh, Burkina Faso is producing six. They continue doing six. And let's just stretch that out for 500 years. And here's, I, I should have had the thing in front of me, but you can search for it. It's like uh, population of uh, year 2,500 or something like that. And it came out to like 4 trillion human beings. And I think like 3 trillion were like Africans or something like that. It was like most of the planet, it was almost all, or maybe it was 4 trillion Africans and then like half a billion people. <laughs> So just like uh, so overwhelmingly African that that everyone else barely even rates. Like it, it's like it's just right, right, an, a right. complete afterthought. The whole yeah, rest so of those the continent or the whole rest of those are listening. Don't quote those numbers exactly. I'm just I'm, I'm getting. But the concept is correct. The concept is the basic idea is that the proportion of Africans as part of the Homo sapien uh, species is getting growing dramatically over from from uh, from the time of colonialism which was like five percent and why is that because colonialists when the colonialists arrived in africa africa was being devastated as always had, had been devastated by diseases that they couldn't solve malaria was just killing millions they couldn't they were producing five ten children per woman but almost all those children would die and so their net reproduction rate was maybe three, four children because they, but then when modern medicine came and solved a lot of the diseases that were in Africa, they are now just shooting up that density because Africa could sustain a lot more, you know, a couple, I think a couple, some people will disagree with me. It can sustain if they manage their thing, their agricultural productivity is horrible one of the worst, terrible pro uh, pr productivity. And so if they had a green revolution, like India had a green revolution, like China had a green revolution, they could sustain a couple billion people easily, easily. And so they're just catching up to where the rest of us are, finally, because they're conquering diseases that we conquered uh, earlier. Are, so are there, that's, that's what's happening. Are there countries or regions, I mean, obviously there are, but do you know offhand that are, that are, higher reproduction rates like you mentioned burkina faso as being six like is is west africa reproducing quicker is you know and uh, we're using these terms again that that we in the beginning of the show said uh, we don't even know where they are but now we're using them. are there are there areas that are like hey this is why it's staying so high or is it as a whole a lot of africa is reproducing very very rapidly and very quickly yeah like most places in the world reaper fertility rates are tightly correlated with economic wealth. So GDP per capita goes up, fertility rate goes down in general. So you've got Nigeria, which is kind of a middle of the pack. Uh, they reproduce about 
four and a half, five children per woman fertility rate. Uh, Burkina Faso is pretty high. It's six. The highest is Niger, which is fertility rate of seven. Uh, they're the highest in Africa. There used to be 25 years ago, it used to be eight. So now, so throughout Africa, the fertility rates are dropping. So that's kind of like the good news. More, but, but I met a lot of people in Africa and they, they don't, you know, they, they want to continue having large families. But I think if you interviewed Americans back in the 50s, they probably would have said the same thing. And then all of a sudden, fertility rates continued to plummet. So um, there's no one, to answer your question, there is no one region that is producing a lot more than any other region as far as fertility rates. It's more has to do with the economic development of the country. So uh, West Africa, I would say, is one of the higher places, but that's because most of West Africa is poor. And so if West Africa somehow boomed economically, I think fertility rates would drop. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and you said you had never been to Africa before this uh, five-year journey. And now here you are quoting off fertility rates of random countries in Africa. It's like it's like we're with CIA fa- uh, World Factbook for Africa here, uh, which is pretty amazing. I, again, one of the reasons I love your books and your, and your, and your uh, posts and all that is that the stuff I want to know – you also want to know and you find out and then you actually remember it, which is nice or write it down somewhere so that it eventually gets yeah. remembered. What were like some of your thoughts and feelings? Like, again, you're taking on this huge trip. I mean, I know what I think about Africa. It's, it's a little hard to even put into words unless we sat down and really talked it out. But, you know, I have this idea of Africa and having ne- well, I've been I've been to Kenya. I've been to South Africa. So I've touched it a little bit. But as you mentioned, the touristic places and, and things like that. What were like your your kind of thoughts going in and which ones of those turned out to be just completely like wrong, complete misconceptions of, oh, I, I just assumed Africa was going to be like this. Oh, my gosh, I, I'm in for uh, a kick of reality. And that's why I love that you did this trip is like, I'm going to see it all and I'm going to see what of these feelings are like. This is so off base that I can't even believe that I thought this at one point. Right. Um, well, to begin with, the first thing that popped into mind when you said that, Trav, is Egypt. Uh, it's kind of like the same impression you might have of Greece so or, or Italy for that matter. So when you think of Italy and you think of Greece, you think of the Roman ruins and you think of all these amazing monuments, you would think that the Greeks and the Italians have their shit together because they are descendants of these people that had their fucking shit together. But then you go there and you realize these guys are just completely backwards. They're like, they're, 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 their economics don't work and their buses don't work, their, this doesn't work. And they're just disasters, Italy and Greece, given that rich heritage that they come from. Right. And so so I came in there kind of the expectation of seeing something like a marvelous society for some strange reason. I don't know. I think it's because I was enamored with this kind of uh, ancient history. So the same thing happened in Egypt. I thought, OK, just the fucking the greatest monument on the planet, the, the biggest buildings ever. And you get there and you're like, God, Egyptians are just they don't have their shit together. And how did they? How are these the descendants of the people that built up this stuff? So uh, that that was kind of the first thing that popped into mind. It was uh, it was it was kind of a, a letdown to some extent um, because I thought that oh here's another reason why Egypt was a letdown in that respect because I had been before I got remember I told you it was the last country 
And so I had seen like a pattern going through as I was going through my, my journey. I went to uh, Morocco, was, you know, not bad. Uh, Algeria, very clean, very orderly society. Tunisia, very clean, orderly society. Libya, I didn't get to explore the northern coast of Libya, so I, don't, I can't really comment on that. But basically every North African country, was they had this, you know, from African standards, they had their shit together. So I thought Egypt is... Uh. <laughs> it's just like took a big step backwards there it's like they're not like algeria they're not like tunisia they're not even like morocco oh, i mean they're they're uh they've they're kind of dysfunctional interesting yeah I, I because i think if you think of africa if someone says africa to a lot of people egypt might be the first thing that comes to mind i i, I would guess if you just ask 100 people hey Africa, what's your first impression? People might be like, pyramids, Egypt. You know, maybe they say Sahara Desert. Some people might say Morocco. Fewer people would probably say South Africa. But I'm guessing it would be that. Or or maybe they talk about like safaris or, you know, Kenya, Tanzania type um, getting out there in the Serengeti. But yeah, that it's fascinating that that was the one of the big misconceptions that stuck out in your mind. What about like Africa in general? Like, Specifically, because we have hold talked. on, hold on. Yeah, I just want to I want to challenge that notion that you just said because I think some people are listening to this, Trav, and they might think, no, no, Trav. The first thing I think of Africa is I think of black people. Okay. You know, I think a lot of people when you say Africa, they think maybe either poverty, black people, that kind of stuff. That's probably so true. Yeah. It's, it, you know, so I don't. I'm not saying I'm not saying you're wrong, but I think for some people, the first thing they might think of is the pyramids, Egypt, right? That's Africa. And then uh, that's the whole notion. When we started this whole conversation talking about Eastern Europe, right, and about how hard it was to define and, like, what is Eastern Europe? And I thought I'd gotten away from that whole issue. Well, now I'm back in the same shit with Africa. <laughs> like, what is Africa? And, and, and uh, you know, what's North Africa? What's East Africa? Oh, God. Anyway, so I, I, I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying that some people will disagree and say, you know, first thing that pops into mind in Africa is black. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I think it would probably be that. It would be, it, yeah, it would be rural black people in huts or villages, you know, something like that. People, some people, yeah, some people will think like that. Other people will think safari. Other people will, you know, let's say if you're a business person, all you know is Nairobi. You're just going to think of Nairobi and, and just right. think of these, these, uh, these overpopulated cities. Well, I should say overpopulated. Density. Yeah, but just bigger, like what, probably way bigger yeah. than someone would think of an African city if they hadn't been there. Because I remember going to Nairobi and being like, oh, whoa, like this, you know, I just, you know, you know, Africa, I knew Africa had cities, but I just, yeah, I guess I was shocked at the scale of, of the city. Um, what about like misconceptions or thoughts of Africa as a whole? And we haven't touched on this topic because I know that this would be a lot of the people would have questions, myself included. Like, let's say I was going to go to Africa. Maybe I'm not doing all 54 countries, right? But I'm going to go to Africa. I want to explore a little bit. Safety. What, what about the misconceptions you had around around safety or, or, or preconceived notions you had about safety? Did they come true? Were you worried about that at all? Were you worried about, like, just getting around 
did, were you hassled more than you thought? Like all that that kind of ideas. Because when I'm thinking about traveling to Africa, I'm thinking, yeah, this is going to be hard. And one of the reasons is like, am I going to be safe? Am I going to get hassled? Am I going to be able to find places and people to show me what to do? Is it just going to be hard to find? I know I'm asking a lot of questions now, but is it just going to be hard to find <laughs> like even a hotel to go to? Like it just seems such a different type of traveling than, than what someone like me is used to. Yeah. And again, we have to kind of, uh, narrow down. I think when you're, you, when you just went on all those questions, you're thinking about the tough part of Africa. Yes. Right. Like that's what's sticking right. in my head. Yeah. Right. Right. You're thinking because so you're thinking like West Africa, middle Africa, you're thinking those to me, West and middle Africa is the tough part of Africa. That's where the shit hits the fan. Um, right. That, and yes, that essentially, yeah, I'm thinking West Africa, just like you said, yeah, Democratic Republic of Congo, like all those countries right in the middle that you're like, yeah, uh, yeah. Is, is, is can I even go here? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't right, even right. like, you know, there's there's fighting here, this and that. Yeah, I'm I'm talking about that band basically, Western and yeah, Central yeah. Africa, where you're like, this is this is going to be difficult, right? And and it is difficult. Um, however, I have this perhaps naive notion that I think the most human beings are good, and that uh, people everywhere are, are, are not out to kill you and that criminals are a minority, uh, a really small minority, less than 1%. And so, and I don't care how poor you are. I don't think that poor people necessarily lose their dignity or their morals automatically. I think it, uh, being poor challenges your values. Um, you, you want to steal a loaf of bread more likely to do it if you're poor than if you're rich. Um, so, you know, that, I'm not denying that poverty can push people to go across moral lines that they probably wouldn't have gone over had they been more rich. But in general, I think people are moral good. And I came in with Africa thinking that Africans are no different in that respect than any other homo sapien. And the good news is that that's true, is that my experience was that everywhere I went, uh, things went well. For the 3,000 hitchhikers, I never had a bad incident, except after my wife came on board because my brilliant wife decided to often put her purse in the back seat. <laughs> so I think it was twice, maybe three times she, and finally she got, she got a clue and decided to keep the person in the front seat where, and uh, there was one guy in, it was one guy in Rwanda. He stole from us. We caught him. Another guy was in the Democratic DRC, he stole from us. We caught him. And uh, hold on, when you say you might, caught, hold on, when you say you caught these people, like I, I want to paint this picture for us. Did you like see him getting off, and then you ran him down, or did you see him as it was happening? How did you how did you catch these people? Okay, I'll I'll tell you the two stories that pop into mind because I there might have been a third story, but I, definitely these two guys, one in Rwanda, one in the DRC. So the Rwanda guy was uh, I can't remember which came first, but anyway, the Rwanda guy. We'll start with him because it's more simple. We. Picked up this guy who was going to be our guide, even though he's not an official guide. He's just a guy. I wanted to sneak to the top of the tallest mountain of Rwanda because I was livid that I would have to spend $600 to go up the tallest mountain of Rwanda. I thought that was a hideously expensive price, and I'm just going to sneak up. Now, I knew that there was military on the mountain, so I thought this is probably not one of my better ideas, but 
I wanted to explore the idea of going. That's why I found this local. And the funny thing is he was, uh, he, he had a gimp or a limp or whatever you want to call it. He was kind of, he had a funny way of walking. Um, so it's not really the best kind of guide you want to have. He was short and had a, he had a <laughs> kind of a limp. Not the guy so you pick out of a lineup. Time. Yeah. It's like your mountain guy. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, you. <laughs> this, by the way, <laughs> it's a 4,300 meter mountain or 4,000, something like that. So that's about, what is that? I don't know, 15,000 feet or something like that. It's yeah, a big fucking This is mountain. not insignificant um, so, amount. You're not climbing up a right, hill exactly. with this gimpy guy. Right. Right. So anyway, so we, we bring him on into the car. We throw him in the back seat, and, uh, we were going to drop him off. I think we stopped somewhere. We asked for some help or da, 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 da. At some point, I guess, Rejoice, Rejoice is the name of my wife. She picked up, she got her purse back. And for some stupid reason, this guy, he, we gave him a chance to leave and he wanted to stay with us for something. Because at that point, I'd given up. I'd given up on my idea of climbing the mountain sneak, uh, stealthily because there was just too much military on the mountain, I, I deduced. And it was the right decision in retrospect because they have a base on top of the summit. <laughs> so that would have not been one of my brighter ideas. You're not going to sneak through them. Would have made an awesome story, <laughs> or hopefully, maybe maybe yeah. we wouldn't be hearing from you at this right. point. If, if you had <laughs> exactly it. right, right. So anyway, uh, bottom line is she got her person. She looked in her person. She says, "Francis, none of my money is here. All my cash is gone." And so, <laughs> so but the guy was still in the car, <laughs> uh, and we were speaking. I guess. It was Rwanda, so we must have been speaking in French to each other. She and I were speaking in French to each other, so he would not understand because he spoke English. And so uh, we colluded, my wife and I colluded, like, how are we going to get this money back? So we stopped in front of a tiny village, and this is what you've got to love about Africans. When they see a they just crowd around you. So then we got out of the car, and I said, you got my money. Show me your money. And... Uh, and then the whole village was kind of like we had about 15 people surrounding this guy. So mob justice took over and then he pulled out the money and stuff like that. And he's just like, oh, I just saw the the, the thing open. And, you know, I don't know. I thought anyway, he, he's kind of a bullshit excuse. So and I, I felt ter- rejoice to this day um, kind of faults me because I left him right there. I was like, you're going to walk back. And it was like about a. 10 or 15 kilometer walk. It would take the gimpy guy a long, long time to get there. It would take him most of the day to get there. It was cruel. I know that. But at that moment, Trav, I was pissed that this guy was, we were going to hire him. In fact, we had paid. Oh, that's the other thing I forgot to mention. I had given him money up front. I had paid him to guide us. And so, and so that I took that money back. To I was like, so I left him destitute with nothing. I was pissed at him. And the and the crowd was cheering me on. They were like, yeah. <laughs> you just got, you just got caught up in the crowd, man. You know, yeah. Exactly. you say you're half French. It was like, it was that French mob mentality coming out <laughs> of you. You're like, should he exactly. live or should he die? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. And so the second uh, tale was this, we got stuck in mud in the DRC, which we got stuck in mud many times. And at that time we had a guy hitchhiking in the back of us and he helped us as oh, and that's the one thing nice about having so many hitchhikers. Every time you get stuck in sand or mud, they get out and help you. They help dig the sand out or dig the mud out or do all the stuff. So you get extra free labor and they got to work for their ride. Um, so that was great. Um, and this guy was helping and 
there was like, we had at that time, I think three hitchhikers with us. And, and so they're all helping. I paid a couple of villagers to help us get us out of the mud as well. Bottom line is, as we were getting back into the car, Rejoice saw that her bag, her purse, sorry, had mud stains all over it. And she was like, why is my purse all muddy? And so she looked in and boom, a lot of the money was stolen, a few hundred bucks. And so then immediately, now one of the hitchhikers, all the hitchhikers had hands covered in mud, including me, of course. So we, um, and we didn't, and, and so we stopped the car and again, it was kind of mob justice, kind of a similar thing. But the guy that we suspected, we were almost sure had it, pulled out. We got him to empty his shoes, his pockets, everything, got down to practically his underwear, and he did not have any money on him. Lo and behold, this is a total miracle because I had not seen anybody for days, certainly not a police. There was a military guy driving on the back of a motorcycle. He had his AK-4. And he was driving by just as we were having this discussion. I hadn't seen a military drive guy on a motorcycle for days, for days. And just that very moment, there was a guy with an AK-47. I flagged him down. I said, excuse me. I was speaking to him in French. And I said to him, this guy, I think, stole our money. We can't find the money on him, but there's a lot of money. And then... One of the guy was an undercover cop. So there was a military guy with the AK-47. The other guy was an undercover cop, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, he works for the cop. And he looked at the guy and he says, don't worry, I'll handle this. I know this guy. <laughs> He's a known thief. And in fact, his father is a police officer. And sorry, the, the father of the thief is like a high-ranking police officer. So his son steals relentlessly because he knows he's always going to get off because he knows his father's always going to bail him out of the justice system and get him out because it's going to completely corrupt his life. So, but the guy, the undercover cop, recognized him and says, don't worry, I'll get your money. So they drove back to the site because the site was about 200 meters back. So they drove back with the motorcycle, took the guy there, and they searched the whole area and they found the stash of cash next to a palm tree that the guy had stashed the money away there to come back to it later and get it. And they came back with the stash of huge amount of cash, uh, you know, bills, lots of bills. And then they said, here's your money. And then I said, okay. And then they said, okay, well, now we, we haven't punished this guy. I said, okay, go ahead and punish him. So they took the guy, put him on the ground on his, on his stomach and pulled out a whip. And they just started flogging him in front of the, you know, like 10, 15 people and just whipping him, whipping him. And uh, yeah, I was like, great. <laughs> and they're like, is that enough? I was like, no, keep doing it. <laughs> that was so cruel. I, I've, I've got very low tolerance. They call it tough justice or whatever you want to call it. But I was just pissed that here's this guy. We, were, we picked him up. He was a hitchhiker. We we're taking him to this town. We're doing him a fucking favor. And the motherfucker is stealing from us. I mean, it just pissed me off at that moment. I know in retrospect... Maybe that was a cruel thing to just encourage the whipping. But I was at that moment cheering him on. I was like, no, I think maybe I should, you know, in fact, at that moment, traffic, like soon thereafter, I was mad that I didn't kick him across the face with my boot. Um, but, but, but I held back on that. <laughs> so um, I thought I was being merciful. <laughs> but anyway, the guy, uh, you know, I'm sure got off scot-free. <laughs> <laughs>
but anyway, and oh, and the other epilogue to that story is that I had to give like maybe about ten or twenty percent, about that's maybe ten percent of the cash to the police officers. Well, yeah, you know, I was going to say. Very, I, I would yeah. assume that I thought you were going to say they brought the money back. Then you gave money, which you did. I didn't. I didn't know they would flog him in front of you. Uh, the long arm of the <laughs> law. Two, two, two things there. Like one, I think you spent way too much time in Eastern Europe because now you're like, oh, no, no mercy on anyone, right? Um, and, and, and two, man, I... Africans do, are like that, dude. I do not want to get on your bad side. I do not want to... I, I will never, ever, <laughs> ever, ever steal money from you. I'm putting it out on the podcast. I'll never take a dime. I'm paying for every drink we ever have, any meal we ever have. I'm just like, here's my credit card, man. Please don't block me. Um, so... Uh, so all that happened, and you mentioned like both those turned out okay, and and it wasn't wasn't a huge deal in the scheme of things. Um, was Western and Central Africa the hardest part though? Like we like you know in my head that was the tough that was the part that I was thinking of the toughest part yeah. for safety and all that. It it did turn out to be that way then. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, that is the most difficult part, but um, and as far as safety. The low light, if you will, was going through Darfur. I went through Western Darfur, Southern Darfur, Northern Darfur, and Eastern Darfur, and Central Darfur. I hit every fucking region of Darfur. And at my high point, you'll love this. Guess how many people I had protecting me? Three. Higher. That was, the lowest was, uh, yeah, the lowest was uh, three. That was the lowest. Like you, you had paid people to protect you, or they just no, they no, were the hitchhikers who. The government of Sudan. No, no, no. The government of Sudan assigned military to me. Oh, okay. To protect me. All right, highest fifteen people. I don't know. It sounds like fifteen. Fifty. Yes. Five zero Six. people with you. <laughs> Yes. Like a 50-person yes. police military escort through the country of Darfur, through the region of Darfur. Eight vehicles with missile launchers, with a huge, like, those gun racks. I don't know how to describe them, you know, those gun, you know, the ones that are mounted on the back of the trucks that shoot machine guns and that kind of stuff. 50 people, eight vehicles, just for me and Rejoice. And there we were. Wow. I mean, was it, I, I guess, oh my God, was it necessary? I guess you don't know if it was necessary. I mean, you probably thought it was right. overkill, but yeah, did they let you do what you want? Like, did they let you see the country and do what you wanted? Was it like, hey, we're here if, if, to protect you, but you can go do your stuff? Or was it, hey, you got to get through this country. We're going to basically drive you through. Yeah, it was more the fact that you just got to get through the country. I want to climb the tallest mountain of Sudan, which is called Jebel Mara, which is in the middle of Darfur. And I had, we were coming in from Chad, so we had to cross all of Chad, which is pretty much desert, to get to Sudan and enter in through Darfur. And right from the get-go, the, they were super hospitable because I had a nice letter from uh, the ambassador of Sudan who works in N'Djamena. N'Djamena is the capital of? Uh, uh, no idea. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> Chad <laughs> and Jimena is the capital Chad. <laughs> I should have gleaned that from and you so, saying you had come from there, but yeah, at this point, I don't know. I'm, I, now I'm like shook. My confidence is low. You know how it gets. 
<laughs> I know, but believe me, when you when you go through Central Asia, you're going to quiz me on all the capitals. I won't be, I won't know jack shit because I know barely any of the capitals of Central Asia. So anyway, um, so, uh, so basically, yeah, they assigned me military from the beginning. And again, like you say, I think what you said is brilliant, uh, Traff, is that I don't know if it's necessary. And we'll never know without a universe. I felt as if I could have traveled through Darfur alone and nothing would have happened to me. I didn't get the feeling like it was such a sketchy place, but you never fucking know, you know? And that's the thing with all of Africa. I went through, I mean, I can think I can say with some amount of confidence that Africa is relatively safe because I went through there without, actually one time I did get assaulted. That was in Cameroon. I was mugged and strangled nearly, you know, to death at one point, but that's another story. Um, but uh, basically Darfur, I think I, it could have been, it could have been uh, fine without the military escort, but I'll never know. What were there other areas that had fighting going on at that point? Because you said you couldn't, you didn't start in Egypt because the Arab spring. So by the time you'd come back around, I guess it had, it had, Fin- I mean, finished or or had possibly been over. What were the what were the areas that you went through that on the world stage when you were going through them were the most quote unquote dangerous or there was stuff happening that that people who don't know Africa that well might have heard of like either Arab Spring or obviously um, stuff in Darfur. Like, what areas were the ones that you thought or or knew would be the most dangerous? The place where it has the newest capital of uh, the, the world. What's the newest capital of the South world? South Sudan? What's the newest capital of the world? So therefore, I, you're right, it's South yeah, Sudan, what, but, what, but what's that's not the, the capital. Yeah, I know. What's the name of the city of South Sudan? I just want to take my half point oh. and go home. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> but, but, but we'll give you half credit there because you did immediately South Sudan. So that's, that's pretty clever. Um, 2011, South Sudan went independent, and that was the most newest country on the block. And the capital is called Juba, J-U-B-A. Okay. Easy to remember, Juba. Juba. Yeah, Juba. Anyway, so um, I know a lot of your listeners like geography just like you, so that's why we're going through all these quizzes. I'm trying to give the when I ask, trying to see if the listeners are also trying to guess. Okay, what is that capital? What is that capital? So they're struggling. If anyone, just like you. if anyone beats me, which I listen, if you know <laughs> Africa geography, you will. Uh, let us know. Yeah, let us know which ones you you knew and which ones you might not have known. Um, yeah, I love right. geography. And so, if but, you don't, if you don't love so, geography, so, it's just a small part of this podcast. So no worries. That's right, right. So South Sudan is was definitely a shithole. Uh, that place is completely fucked up. And that was, I remember going to the ambassador in Kampala, which is the capital of Uganda, and he was the South Sudanese ambassador, uh, not the ambassador, he was the council. And he told me, you know what, I hear your trip to climb the tallest mountain and to drive through us, because I want to drive through, you'll love this drive through South Sudan to go to the Central African Republic. <laughs> go from one shithole to another shithole. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he was like, I cannot visa to go there. You know, it's just too dangerous. And so in the end, what we did is, I, the luckily, the tallest mountain of South Sudan is very close to the border of Uganda. So I drove to the border of Uganda and South Sudan, and Rejoice and I, despite all the people telling us, don't do it. We sneaked in to South Sudan, clandestine, two days to go climb the tallest mountain of South Sudan. How did you sneak in? 
Like, was there just not border patrol? There was border people on the Uganda side. And so we went to uh, the Ugandan authorities and the police. There wasn't, yeah, the police there. And I told them, I said, hey, you know, I just want to go climb this mountain on South Sudan. Do you guys have a problem with that? And they're like, you really don't want to do that. I mean, there's rebels. There's all sorts of shit going on in South Sudan. Uh, there, you know, there's people on the mountain. Potentially, there's been people who've because the, the village, the in Uganda, the people go from the village and they hike over across the mountain, not through the the summit, of course, you know, through the pass, the mountain pass, to do trade with the South Sudanese village on the other side. And there have been incidents where they have their little small caravan. They do it like every once a month or something like that gets assaulted by these people and gets all their stuff robbed. So they told me, don't do it. In fact, there was a hermit that I met. He was actually living on the mountain, this old decrepit dude who was just living up there on the mountain. Uh, he was on officially, on according to my GPS, in South Sudan, but he felt like he was in Uganda because he was still on the slope of the Uganda side. And he, uh, yeah, he said, don't do it. He was an old man. He's lived in that mountain all his life. He's like, don't do it. Don't do it. But for some reason, I guess, call it stupidity, call it ignorance. Or, and it wasn't ignorance. I was educated. I knew what I was getting into, but I went for it. And uh, believe it or not, Trav, we did not see a single human being on the mountain were for you two sc- days. Were you scared, though? I was scared. Was, that, was yeah. that the most scared you were the, the whole time? Like the whole trip? Um. <clears throat> It, it, it the other time was when I was going into Libya. Um, that was sketchy because I had to cross all of Chad by car. That takes a couple of weeks. You're going through the middle of the Sahara Desert. Um, that was a tallest mountain. In Libya is on the Chad border. That's really remote. It's probably the most remote tallest mountain in Africa. That was sketchy. Um, the other time I was scared was when both Mustafa, which is my brother-in-law, and my wife rejoice both got lost on the tallest mountain of the sahara which is in chad it's called emikusi and they both got lost and they both spent the night out in the cold mountain by themselves that by the next morning i would not find them that they would be both dead so that was another scary moment and the other scary moment i mentioned before is when i was being strangled in cameroon in a dark alley that was another scary moment there was a, i guess a few little things like that but overall oh another time when i saw a pygmy in uh a pygmy guys with arrows bows and arrows um there were these little tiny human beings in the congo and that was you know it was just a brief moment it just took seconds but i had the windows down because it was hot and humid and these guys with these bows and arrows were looking at me with a very kind of strange look like not the typical african friendly hey how's it going look but more like a bit of a suspicious like skeptical look and that got me just a flash of worry yeah you know, did you like and, and you just book i guess you were in your car so you just were like i'm out of here like yeah. just booked it yeah I just, I just kept i just kept rolling i just kept rolling i just smiled and waited and then uh just kept rolling um but it was not part of me wanted to stop and film them and to talk to them and stuff like that but i was like you know what my my gut instincts here I got to follow them. This is just doesn't feel right. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this, this Cameroon question or, or to, to uh, like kind of elaborate on this Cameroon story. So you were, you were mugged and strangled in an alley in Cameroon. 
what uh, either what pre- well what precipitated it and then what like how did you get out of this situation because that i guess then you said would probably be the closest you had gotten to to getting to death, death or or yeah dramatically hurt yeah basically what happened was uh i was with rejoice and we were traveling somewhere i can't remember where to but we were taking a bus and there was no place to piss not that i could see at least and so i just went down a, an alley and when i went down this alley there was written in big sign you know ne pas pisser you know you cannot don't piss here in french Okay, I'll just walk a little bit longer. And then, and it kept saying, don't piss here, don't piss here. I just like, shit. The, and the deeper and deeper I went down the alley, it kept saying, don't piss here. Finally, I found a place where there was no sign saying, don't piss here. So I pissed there. Then I walked on my way back. Now, at this point, I was over 100 meters away from civilization, from the main road. And then this guy came up to me and says, hey, uh, if you're looking for a place to piss, I can show it to you. I said, no, no, I'm fine. Thanks. I just kept walking past him. Two seconds later, he's the same guy that had just asked me a question, come from behind me and put me in a chokehold and just started strangling me. And then out of nowhere, I didn't see him. He had an accomplice. And that accomplice was going through my pockets uh, of my pants. Uh, and he immediately ripped out my wallet, but I had my cell phone in my different pocket. And so he grabbed the wallet fast, but they were still strangling me. And he was going for my cell phone. I had my hand both of my hands, in fact, on my cell phone, just holding it. The problem with doing that is what? You're getting strangled. <laughs> yeah, like now you can't you, breathe. <laughs> right. And there's another consequence I had never thought about, about being strangled. What is that, Trav? Um, I, I don't know. You, 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 you can't You've yell. never been strangled. Well, you can't yell for help, you I guess. You can't yell. You're yeah. right. You're right. You can't yell for help. You're right. So and I had never thought about that because this is the first time in my life I've ever been strangled. I never <laughs> thought about the fact that when you're strangled, you can't yell for help. Right. Your vocal cords are kaput. So I was like, shit, I cannot scream. What a helpless situation this is. I can't breathe. I can't scream. And I, 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 and I thought about taking my arms, my hands, and pulling the guy's chokehold off of me, you know, try to, to wrestle my way with my hands. But I knew the moment I left my hands off my cell phone, I would – you know, I, I, they would run away with my cell phone. And of course, they would let me go and stuff like that. So I thought, you know, you know what? As long as I have a little bit of strength in me, keep fighting for my stupid cell phone. <laughs> and I did. And even though these guys were both in their 20s and bigger than me, I somehow managed to wrench my, twist myself to get my vocal cords out so I could actually take a breath and scream while holding on to my cell phone because they had extracted from my pocket but i still had it in my hands and i was putting it in between my groin and the guy was still trying to yank it away from my hands but i holding it so tight and i screamed and within about five seconds of after i screamed somebody came down the alley and spooked guys and they just took off you know it, it the whole thing happened in probably 20 seconds maybe 30 seconds you know, but those are the longest seconds you can imagine. When you're being choked, 20 seconds is like forever. Yeah. <laughs> and you're expending a lot of energy. So, yeah, that was, that was it. Yeah. And in the end, I just, they, they, like 10 bucks in my wallet. I had none, uh, everything was in my money belt. I had like $2,000 in my money belt. I had my uh, driver's license in my money belt. The, all they did is like they took like 15, 20 bucks, something like that. That was it. Wow. And there was no ID, nothing in the wallet. I was lucked out. Did, did it spook you then for 
like a few days? Like, were you shook? Were you, did you consider, I mean, either leaving that country or not going on with this thing? Because I, that, that to me would be a part where I'd sit there and say, I, I, I got off of lucky. I mean, it's not lucky to get choked, but nothing really bad happened. But man, right. like this, this, this could ha- like something like this could happen at this point. And you're in Cameroon. So you yeah. were at that point, you had been on the trip for a while, but yeah. What, what, what like, tell me about the next couple hours or next couple days then and emotionally yeah, I mean, for you. I think it, the, the, the thing is uh, the other interesting thing is that I, I was struggling. It's not, I had like a hoarse voice for about a week. So for, a, it had done some sort of damage to my throat. But no, I just got over it. I mean, I realized, you know, hey, you could get mugged in Chicago. You can get mugged in New York. You can get mugged in Paris. You know, this shit happens. And uh, I just got unlucky. I had also gotten mugged. Now I just remembered that as I was talking to you. I got mugged also in uh, the capital of Ghana, which is? Um, Accra. No. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, okay, yes. okay, yeah, yeah. Accra. 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 They pronounce it Accra. Okay. No, Accra, Accra. Accra. Um, but yes, you're right. So there, that was a, a much more benign situation. It was a funny story. I had my cell phone in my hand. I was walking. It was a brand new cell phone. I had only had it for like a week or two. And I was walking to this busy bus station. I said, you know, Francis is really stupid. Anybody could knock it out of my hand and grab it. So I said, I'll just put it in my front pocket, into you know, like the nerdy front pocket pouch of your, of your shirt. Because obviously nobody's going to be able to just like grab it because I'll see them coming right in front of me, right? Literally 10 seconds after I put it into my front pocket – some guy comes from behind, pound, you know, jumps on me, pushes me forward, reaches over my shoulder, grabs the phone out of my pocket, and 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 you know, I didn't fall on the floor, but you know, he just shoved me, and just, and it was a crowd of people, like I told you. So I turned around and I couldn't see the guy, and he got away with my phone. So um, the other time that I got uh, mugged was it wasn't me; I was actually rejoice was when I was walking across Madagascar. That's another thing I did as I, we started in the northern tip of Madagascar and we walked to the southern tip of Madagascar. That took four months of walking well, through okay. the, the why, mud. And the, why that? Like, why add the walking bit? Like, all right, or let's, let's go on that and let's also say what other little, not little, what other like missions or quests did you have? You have the, the one to climb the tallest mountain in every um, country. Yeah. So you did that. Walk across Madagascar. Were these other like sub quests within it, or are those the two big ones? <laughs> yeah, those are probably the two big ones. Uh, I, you know, I did, like I mentioned, the Drakensberg Traverse, like a two hundred and ninety mile. I can't remember the exact statistics. Um, two week trail, and I also walked across most of, or about half of, walked across all of the high atlas in Morocco, which is a mountain range that goes from the middle of Morocco to the Atlantic Ocean. So that was another long trek. Those were the only major kind of like through hikes, if you will. Those were all, I guess, those what you call the sub 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 goals or something like that from the overall mission. But the Madagascar thing, I was we were in the jungle and it was in the morning, six a.m. And Rejoice was cleaning herself. She likes to clean herself every morning um, by you know by stream, just wash her face, wash her a little bit of her body by a stream. So I left her with a privacy. I was there with Sim, that guy I told you about, that 62-year-old guy who was walking across. So we went ahead and left her alone. That was the problem. Because then she started yelling out to me, you know, yelling out my name. And that attracted guys who came, one of them with a machete. And they you know, pushed her on the ground and told her to give her the backpack as well as uh, her shirt 
her her jacket. So she was left in a bra. So you can imagine when I saw her, I was like, shit, she maybe just been raped or something like that. It was a that was a, a jarring moment as well. But you know, again, given the risks that we took, uh, just the, the how much we threw ourselves out there. Given I'm a white guy in Africa, because by the way, even in Morocco, there's people who are as white as me in Morocco, but I they can kind of tell the difference between Arabic color and a white guy even so and besides that when i was in northern africa i was with rejoice <laughs> for morocco but you know so i always stood out basically i either because of rejoice in north africa or because of me in black africa either way i was always staying out so given that exposure given the remoteness of everything given the cities we went to kinshasa you name it very few things that were negative actually happened. And given that fact, I picked up 3,000 hitchhikers, Trav. And, and the only ones that stole it from me was because Rejoice put, if I put my wallet in the back of my car every, and I picked up 3,000 American hitchhikers, how many times would they just pick through my wallet? Yeah. A lot. More than the three that basically happened in <laughs> Africa, I would guess. Right. I mean, that if we're so, doing math here, I'm not mad. That's like 0.1%, right? So, right, right. yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's an interesting thing that somebody said that locks are made for honest people, not for dishonest people. Because to pick a lock is actually surprisingly easy. Certainly in America, you get any lock picks, like, you can do it. It's to remove temptation from honest people like you and me. But... When, because even honest people like you and me, when there's just money just lying there, so easy to get, we will become morally weak. But, and it's just a lot more tempting when it's just sitting there for grabs. But when it's behind a lock, we're not going to cross that line. It's, it's, it helps us keep in check. So that's the same thing is that nobody stole from me in Africa um, for, for in, in such a blatant way when I was hitchhiking with them. Yeah. That it's fascinating. I want to I want to spin it uh, quickly to the positive stuff. I know it's like asking it is like asking who's your favorite child or something like that. I mean, this is your baby now. 54 countries, 5 years. Yeah, yeah, thank you. But I mean, this and you know, multitudes of experiences like we we've touched on a lot of them here, but they're just, you know, these are little anecdotes of bigger 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 stories and there's probably so many more you have. But what were the like if you give me a few of the memories that that really, like, when you think back on this trip, you're like, these were two or three of the best possible days or memories that I have of the trip. What what stands out to you? The first thing that popped into my mind, I don't know, it, 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 it comes from a, a moment of happiness when I found out that when we were sitting on the tall, tallest mountain of Madagascar, which is extremely remote, and we had, it was a rainstorm that just moved in, like, moments after we hit the summit, we couldn't find a way down. It was very cold. We were close to hypothermic. And I just remember the joy when Rejoice, after searching for about two hours for a way down the mountain, because we needed to traverse the mountain. We didn't want to come back the way we came. And besides, the way we came was going to be impossible to go back the same way we came because it was too much uh, free climbing. Uh, so we couldn't go down that route. It would be too dangerous and muddy and slippery. So we had to find a different way down. And that was so uh, such a big joy when I found when when I had just taught her what a cairn is. You know, a cairn is a stack of rocks yep. on, on a mountain, and to indicate the trail goes here. I had just taught her like maybe a day before what stacks of rocks, and she spotted one, and I didn't see it, 
And that Karen led us down the mountain. And I was so grateful because we were hypothermic and the sun was about to set about two hours away from setting or not even one hour away from setting. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, the amount of people, uh, villagers who, who invited us to their house was astounding. Um, everywhere we go, Africans are just generally just such easygoing people. They're just, you know, and this is their blessing and their curse. You know, that's, you know, the, the blessing is that they're easygoing, you know, nothing, you know, nothing to get fussed up about. But the curse of that, of course, is that you cannot produce a functioning society that competes with Switzerland and Japan when everybody's laid back. Right, right. Yeah, because the, the Japanese aren't laid back. So we know that. <laughs> we know that. Right. Yeah. So it, it is that it's just that overall meant like you just enjoy that overall mentality of getting to hang out with them and, and seeing stuff that obviously someone who didn't spend the time in in the continent would have gotten to see. Yeah. And also anything is possible in Africa as long as you have the time and the money. You know, if you've got the patience and if you've got some money to bribe people, pretty much you can do almost anything. And that's different than other societies. You, you go to Luxembourg. You cannot just do almost anything. It doesn't matter how much you bribe somebody. It's tough. Um, it doesn't matter somehow how much you wait. If they tell you you have to wait this amount of time, you know, it, it, some things you just can't get done, no matter if you're a patient or whatever. But in Africa, if you're willing to wait two, three days or two, three months, eventually something will happen. If you're willing to pay through the nose, it will happen. Um, and not all societies are like that. And there's a good side and a bad side to that. But anyway, sometimes I was grateful for that, it was so nice. I would be pulled aside for, for, for breaking some sort of law, and I'd just give the guy ten bucks, and he'd just let me go. Okay, thanks. Just like it was no problem. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. If every time I was speeding, I didn't have to worry. Like I didn't have to hit the brakes when I saw the cop, which is probably too late anyway, and be like, oh, I'd watch and hope he doesn't follow me. It's like, ah, okay, I'll just give him ten bucks. If you know, it's not the end of the world here. Do you, did you have a like a specific spot? Again, this is like this is must be crazy hard to answer, but but maybe not. Maybe there's something that sticks out for natural beauty. Like you just saw something and you thought, "Whoa, this is this is absolutely incredible." I love desert trout. So to me, Namibia. If you ask me what my favorite country in this in in the African continent is, it's either Mauritius, which is that island nation, or or. Namibia is is phenomenal, and but of course the Sahara itself has just amazing, amazing scenes, uh, especially up in Chad. Uh, it was just phenomenal. The isolation. Um, you also in Niger they have the Ayer Mountains. It's spelled like air a i r, but there's two dots on the i. Um, those mountains in the middle of uh, the of Niger, just in the middle of Niger, just there's these mountains that rise up 2,000 meters, 6,700 feet or so. Just spectacular. Uh, just so many. I love desert, so I'm a sucker for that. For other people, they might be enamored with the Serengeti or they might be enamored with the jungle. Um, but I like I like desert. And uh, I know for Joyce, I remember one of her favorite spots was the tallest mountain of Malawi, which is uh, Mulanji Mountain. And it's maybe about 3,000 something meters. And it was just, it was nice. They had a hut along the way. That was also pretty, pretty amazing. You know, when you climb the tallest mountain of every African country, 
you're going to see some pretty amazing mountains. I guess what's more memorable are the ones that are not real mountains. Like your favorite country? The Gambia. Thank you. It's 56 meters high, <laughs> which is about 150 feet, <laughs> which is not really mountain. I mean, the whole fucking country is like super flat. And so I was driving around for hours just to try to find yeah, that that is that is funny that that you would go from these huge mountains to then basically a hill or or ba- barely even a hill. That would be hard to find. Um, la- last kind of question here on Africa, and then I'm going to ask you about the project and how people can learn more about it because, like I mentioned, we just we just kind of scratch the surface here. If someone was l- like, if someone was interested in hitting up Africa, they had never been to Africa before. Um, what would be a few of the places that you would recommend? So, and again, this can be for any type of traveler, but if like, I, I haven't, you know, I haven't been to Africa. I want to see some stuff, but you know, I'm probably not going to send them to the democratic Republic of Congo, but what would be some ones that you're like, Hey, these are, these are really neat. They might be a little more off the beaten path, but they're certainly doable for people. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, for North Africa, pretty much anywhere, but Libya is fair game. In North Africa, it's a nice blend of exoticness with safety, infrastructure, uh, ordered societies, that kind of stuff. So uh, for those who want to get an Arabic feel of Africa, North Africa, anywhere, Libya is eventually going to go peaceful again. But for now, I think it's still off limits uh, for most people. Then for the sub-Sahara, I would look at Namibia because a lot of people go to South Africa, but they skip out on Namibia which is a shame. Um, it has a lot to offer. Um, if you if you want to go off to Mauritius, uh, Seychelles less so, but Seychelles is quite nice too. Um, Comoros, if you want to go off the beaten path, very safe, but it's a Muslim country, so it's a totally different feel mm-hmm. Mauritius and Seychelles. Uh, crazy. The tough part, Travis, is to figure out a place in West Africa because West Africa, to me, you know, from a touristy perspective, it's it's few and far between. People go to Accra, Ghana, and they look at the slave place, stuff like that, or go to to the slave stuff in um, the launching pad of, of, of in, in Senegal. But it's just not super scenic. Their cities are not spectacular. Um, Lagos and Nigeria. I mean, you go to West Africa for one reason. It's the same reason you go to Africa. It's just to meet won't have a completely wild experience, which is not just here to like a more mainstream traveler. Find something that's a little bit edgy, not Tanzania, not Kenya, right? That's your kind of your question, right? Yeah, that is exactly like, yeah, what, what's a little bit yeah. edgy, what's a little bit, but but still safe. I think like you hit it and, and I'm guilty you know, as charged. Here's, here's a controversial one. Here's a, here's a controversial one, but I think that people will be shocked by my answer, but I really believe it. Sudan. Sudan is super safe. They are the nicest, most hospitable people without a doubt. Rejoice for Greece after 31 countries. They are so fucking hospitable. Just great. Sudan, here's the thing is, a lot of people don't know that they actually have more pyramids than Egypt. They have the Nubian. Now, the pyramids are much smaller, but they have a, a rich, the Nubian history is all there in Sudan. They have um, a capital, which on African standards is pretty nice. Uh, Khartoum. Some people will say Khartoum, but it's really Khartoum. Um, and I think that in the next 
couple of years, Darfur will finally open up, which would be great because they have some amazing mountains in Darfur. So, but, but even if you don't go to Darfur, Sudan itself is a great place to go for exotic, safe adventures, an orderly society, kind of like Egypt. Um, that's not rough and tumble, but it's definitely off the beaten path. So that to me is one of my top recommendations. Namibia, also pretty fun. And then Malawi is also pretty good, although it's a little bit too crowded for my taste, but it's so beautiful and scenic. Malawi is super scenic. And Rwanda also, if you want to go someplace. Rwanda sounds scary because of the image, but it's completely, it's a police state in a sense because of the, the, they're really clamped down on security there. So uh, Rwanda, they have some amazingly paved, paved roads. Billions of dollars have poured into that country, and they haven't completely abused that money that's flowed in, and they've built up. Um, beautiful capital of Kigali, which I think you've been to? No, I have not been there. Okay. I just know that it's in Rwanda because we have a lot of uh, Jeddo deals for whatever reason going to Kigali, Rwanda. Like it seems like every once in a while there's a deal for 600 bucks from like the US to Kigali, Rwanda. Um, and so that's only in the last, uh, only in the last eight months did I realize that Kigali was in Rwanda. So, okay. Is that, is that with Air Rwanda? Uh, that's a good question. I don't actually remember what's flying there. That That's a good question. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I know Air Rwanda is trying to become like, Rwanda is trying to become a regional hub. They want to become the Switzerland of okay. Africa. You know, they're, they're landlocked, but they want to become rich like Switzerland. And so they're doing their best. They're the only country that doesn't need a visa. You know, they, everybody gets a visa on arrival. One of the few countries, Seychelles and Rwanda is one of the only countries that give an a visa to anybody who visits them. Cool. All right, Kigali, including Africa. Yeah, Kigali. <laughs> yeah. When you when you uh, when you see that Jeddo deal, guys, just uh, book it. You yeah. don't even have to worry about the visa there. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, Francis, as we wrap up here about the project because originally you said you wanted it to uh, you you did filming, you were going to do the show. So where are you at with this project? Like, a, how can people find out more information about it, and what is the goal? for the unseen africa is it still to have it as as a show and and in video format what do you what do you uh, see as coming out of this five-year amazing epic journey other than you know for yourself you had an awesome time you get to come on and regale us with african stories but what are, what are you going to be doing with it so four things one is the wander learn podcast that's somebody something that some people can actually enjoy right away and so it's not going to be focused on africa in fact it's it's kind of a an open show but it's a travel related show travel technology talk about tips travel tips as well so that is the wander learn podcast people can go to wanderlearn.com to find out to listen to that that they've i've got like 11 episodes so far so that's that but Specifically on the Unseen Africa, there's three major projects. The book. One second is the documentary, which will be about a 90-minute documentary. And then the third is a video series. So the book is obvious and easy. That's coming out uh, May 25th, which is Africa Day 2020. So it's still a while away. I've written about 15 of the 54 chapters. So it takes time. I've got to pump those out. Um, but by the way, I have, uh, there's ways that you can, I have a Patreon that I just started and that way people can get advanced chapters as I'm writing them. So I, as I'm writing that, I'm releasing to my Patreon people. So cool. That's, one that's thing. awesome. Second that's really all, neat. Nice. Yeah. 
and that, that way they can give me edit, editorial insight. You know, they can say, hey, you know, Francis, you know, take out this, lead this. And, you know, I love getting feedback from people just like you like getting feedback from your listeners. Sometimes you feel like you're talking to a wall and you're like, is anybody listening to this? Oh, yeah, 25,000 people are listening. <laughs> um, and then second is uh, the, the documentation time um, to promote the book at the same time. And the third thing is a video series. The video series is the big the thing I don't know is going to happen because that depends on whether I can get picked up by Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or a, an actual network like the Outdoor Life Network or National Geographic or Discovery Channel and that kind of stuff. That's a much tougher thing to do. A just a uh, documentary I can do on my own, a book I can do on my own, whether a publisher wants to buy it or not. But a video series, I could do it on YouTube and I might just do it on YouTube, but that's a lot of work for a little reward. You've got to get like a million views per um, video to make a good amount of money. You know, it's kind of like podcasting. Podcasting, it pays shit, you know, unless you're getting as many listeners as you have. And even then, it's not like it's not like you're rolling with your Ferrari. Right. I'm, I'm rolling with my 2011 Mini Cooper, um, which was actually a pretty big splurge for me. I was like, oh, second car. And I, you better believe I might not be able to negotiate in French or Spanish or Portuguese, but I can negotiate in English. And I certainly did with that guy in New Jersey. I got him down about as cheap as you're going to find it. Um, so I'm with you. OK, so you have but you have the video footage like this whole time you were shooting video footage. So it, it could feasibly make its way into a video series. You're just saying, hey, I can do the documentary myself. 90 minutes, like, that. that's worth it. Like, you know, I, I can do it. I could get other people to help me with it. It's not going to be prohibitively time, um, like, too much time or prohibitively expensive. But, yeah, a video series where it would be, like, one episode a country or even, you know, even a 10-episode yeah. series would yeah. be, yeah. That's, it's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. It's a man. lot of work. Okay. And, you know, realistically, unless you're going to have somebody backing you up on that, it's just going to take a ton of time for very little monetary reward. So much work. I did a Kickstarter. I raised $23,000 just to do one episode of The Unseen Africa. And that was a 45-minute episode about Morocco. That took so much effort. And all $23,000 went to other people, not to me. Nothing went to me. Well, well, Francis, thanks so much for joining me today. I, I, I could legitimately continue on for five more hours. This is now, to date, the longest podcast we've had on the Extra Pack of Peanuts one. And, and if I'm being totally transparent, I kind of thought that would happen going in. Um, you, you guys know, listeners and Francis, you know, I don't hold anyone to any time limit. I just like, all right, how's the conversation going? I actually had to look and say, like, Trav, don't ask everything you want to know yet um because but uh yeah save we're it not, for the book. that's right we save it for the book you guys gotta get the book but thank you so much for joining me man and and for honestly being being big and one of the biggest travel inspirations in in my world but i think just in the travel world in general because you're you're biting off projects that i think a lot of us wish we could do and and you know for certain reasons may never do and and probably you know i can safely say i probably will not do a five-year trip where i don't leave africa and go to 54 countries but you get you do it and you do it in a way that's fun and engaging so thank you for all of that and of course for making sure i knew about that little church above coder in montenegro and uh that's in the hidden europe so guys get that book of course um what's the best way uh we've talked about it but the best way for people to go to find everything that you're doing and then to like go to all the disparate projects 
Um, where should they go? Well, francistapon.com um, is probably the easy, or if you just remember S. Tapon, my last name is, just think of tampon without an M. Awesome. So we got <laughs> ftapon.com. You can go to wanderlearn.com too, right? That'll, that'll redirect there. Yeah, that's um, right. You you can Google that will redirect it'll redirect right to the podcast page. Awesome. Yeah, you can you also Google me, then you're really yeah. You could Google them. You could Google like uh, Santiago or um, the Camino uh, de Santiago. Yeah. You'll probably find his post there of why it sucks, which I yeah. first read and was like, this guy's such a punk. And then I'm like, wait, I've never done it, and his points seem pretty valid. Like here I am saying that he's wrong, and I've never actually done it. Uh, and that's why I first reached out to you because I was like, this is cool. This is a little bit of a counter. Uh, vibe to to what most people are saying. So yeah, you, people can find you now and they can also, and I would urge you guys, if you like this podcast that, that you just listened to with Francis, and obviously I liked it. We're two and a half hours in. Like I could talk forever with you, Francis. And, Check out the Wanderlearn podcast. And also listen, and the Wanderlearn podcast, you are episode, you're basically the first episode, Trap, because I interviewed you. So for your listeners, because they're always asking the questions. And, and so a lot of people don't, even though they've been listening to your 350 episodes, they haven't actually, they may not know you as well. And if they listen to the podcast I did with you, they'll get a, a good sense because you do 90% of the talking on that episode. Yeah. So and that's that, a good motivator. Super fun too. Yeah. If you want to know more about me, head to the Want to Learn podcast. Yeah. But uh, it <laughs> yeah. is awesome. Yeah, and sure. I told Francis this specifically. I don't listen to many podcasts myself, um, right. believe it or not. And I actually said to Francis, I can't wait to listen to yours when it came out. And I, will, and I have been. So uh, check it out. The Want yeah. to Learn podcast is, is awesome. You can get it any way that you're listening to this. And also, ftapon is not just good to find the, my website, ftapon.com, you can find it, but also it's my username throughout all social media. So Twitter, ftapon, ftapon, everything is always ftapon. So that's a useful thing for people to, to if they want to track me down or stalk me or whatever. Awesome. Perfect. And we will link everything. We'll make it easy for you. So we just told you all those places to go. And if you don't remember any of them... You will make it really easy to you for you by putting it all in the show notes. You can go to extrapackofpeanuts.com slash shows. You can get the show notes for this episode. We'll link all that kind of stuff up. Go chat up uh, Francis on social media. Listen to the Wanda Learn podcast. Dig into some of the archives and some of the stuff that you were doing with Unseen Africa. You guys can find out all the information um, there as well by going to his various sites. And uh, yeah, Francis, I just want to say thanks again. I mean, it's been four uh, four years, so we had a lot to catch up on. So I'm hoping we don't wait another four years before we get to record again. And next time, I think we should record in person. I think we should record in person. Yeah, so. was, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I feel bad because I did go. I was in New York and I went down to DC and I didn't pass by Philly. I feel guilty, but I was that was another story. Uh, well, where but, are um, you right now? Actually, I'm in California, okay. Northern California. Okay. Near the San Francisco airport. So if you ever go to SFO, um, uh, definitely I'll, I'll pick you up at the airport because I'm only about 10 minutes from SFO. Um, 2020, when my book comes out, you've got to read it. And then after you read it, I want you to write down, while you're reading it, I want you to write down all the questions you're going to pound me with. And then we'll do an episode. And then you can say, Francis, I read your book. Here are nine questions. That is that is perfect. All right, that that's a deal. We're making a deal here, and um, yeah, I, I'll make sure that when I come out there, I'll get a hold of you guys. And yeah, everyone listening, don't forget, 
I, I, I truly mean it when I say, it, Francis, you're you're one of my, if not my favorite travel writer out there. And I know you say, hey, I'm a travel writer. That's like how you delineate it, right? Even though you do a thousand other things. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly mean it. It's <laughs> awesome. Guys, The Hidden Europe has been on our gift guide ever since I read it four years ago, maybe five now. Still one of my favorite books. I have it on the bookshelf behind me. Check out Francis's stuff. It's 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 like a cross between an awesome textbook and a travel log, exactly like this episode was. You're learning stuff. You're learning what the capital of uh, of Chad is. You're learning what the, you know the <laughs> capital of South Sudan is. But you're also hearing a story about how he was mugged in Cameroon and he didn't want to give up his cell phone. So uh, that's basically what the books are about. So, Francis, thanks again, man. I really, really appreciate it. Likewise. Take care, Scott. Everyone, thank you for tuning in today for your continued support that makes this number one rated travel podcast on Apple Podcast. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris soon.